We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world of people who think. Welcome to Sot Talk Radio. In the studio this week are myself, Neil Bradley, Joe Quinn. Say hi, Joe. Hi there. We've also got Pierre Lescaudon. Hi. And Jason Martin. Bonjour. Back by popular demand. <laughs> yeah. So this week we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Colin Ross. Dr. Ross is a psychiatrist who received his MD from the University of Alberta, Canada in 1981 completed his specialty training in psychiatry at the University of Manitoba in 1985. He's the author of over 170 papers in professional journals, most of them dealing with dissociation, psychological trauma, and MPD, multiple personality disorder. More on that later. He is a past president of the International Society for the Study of Dissociation and Trauma and a former Lachlan Fellow of the American College of Psychiatrists. Uh, Dr. Ross founded the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma in 1985, a private organization that specializes in treating mental health issues. He has also written 27 books, including The CIA Doctors, Human Rights Violations by American Psychiatrists, Military Mind Control, A Story of Trauma and Recovery, The Great Psychiatry Scam, and Trauma Model Therapy, a treatment approach for trauma, dissociation, and complex comorbidity. Now, in his book, The CIA Doctors, which we've got a copy of here and we're reading this week, Dr. Ross provides proof based on 15,000 pages of documents obtained by the CIA, oh, excuse me, from the CIA through the Freedom of Information Act, that there's been pervasive, systematic violations of human rights by American psychiatrists over the last 65 years. He also proves that the Manchurian candidate Super Spy is fact and not fiction. He describes the experiments conducted by psychiatrists to create amnesia, new identities, hypnotic access codes, and new memories in the minds of experimental subjects. In another book we read this week, The Great Psychiatry Camp, Dr. Ross provides evidence that modern psychiatry generally is actually a pseudoscience, something that we've talked about on the show before, with many of the main accepted theses about the causes of human mental illness actually disproven by the psychiatric experiments and research. So, Colin, welcome to Salt Talk Radio. Are you there? Yeah, I am. Thanks for the introduction. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on. It's a pleasure to have you here speaking with us today. Um, I suspect many of our listeners will be familiar with you to some degree or another. Um, I know that I wasn't so familiar with your name, but I recognized your face before. Because you've been on TV, in the media, and uh, in fact, I first recognized you in a documentary called Evidence of Revision, The Assassination of America, which is, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it was a, it had clips of you speaking to U.S. TV channels about uh, awful personality disorder, CIA involvement, and so on and so forth. Um, before we get into that, 
I thought I'd open this up by asking you, given that you're an expert on this, to explain to our listeners what multiple personality disorder is, how it develops in people. Sure. Uh, there's controversy about it, like there is about everything in psychiatry. <clears throat> but basically, it's one of the recognized disorders that's in the manual, and it's in the uh, new edition of the manual that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's been recognized in the manual since the uh, 1980 edition. And it was kind of tucked away in another section prior to that. Uh, there's a history of you know, case reports and interest in it going back to the 19th century in psychiatry and psychology. So basically it's uh, when you have, quotes different people inside. Now, they're not literally different people. They're not literally separate personalities. But they feel, act, look and behave as if they are. So it's not true that there's literally a bunch of different people living in the same body. <clears throat> it's a psychiatric okay. disorder. <clears throat> but um, basically you have uh, different quotes, people of different ages who take turns being in control of the body. And there's usually uh -huh. some combination of amnesia between one part and another part. Okay, well, that, that's a key point right there quite often one part is unaware that there are other parts. Is that correct? Uh, sometimes there's no awareness. The out front person is just by convention called the host personality. So uh -huh. fairly often the host personality doesn't realize there's other people inside. Uh, but sometimes the host personality can tell you, yeah, there's so-and-so age who's this age and has this color hair and this name. And then this other person is this age. And, and so it varies. Some people have no awareness whatsoever. Some people have kind of a little fuzzy awareness. And some people know a fair bit at the time they're initially diagnosed. Wow. <clears throat> Maybe you could um, explain the differences between schizophrenia and MPD because there seems to be some confusion between those conditions and some misdiagnosis you, you quoted in your book about CIA experiments. So is it the same, or what are the differences between those conditions? Well, that's actually a very complicated problem in the mental health field. And one of my books is called Schizophrenia, Innovations in Diagnosis and Treatment. And it's all about this problem, which is 99.9% .9 ignored in the regular general schizophrenia field. Uh, but in the dissociative disorders field, which is uh, multiple personality is officially called dissociative identity disorder, So it's one of the dissociative disorders. In the dissociative disorders field, there's quite a literature about this. What are the differences? What are the similarities? How do you tell them apart? And if you go to like, the National Institute of Mental Health or any schizophrenia information website, you'll hear uh, read that schizophrenia is a brain illness. It's genetic. It's not caused by childhood trauma. Uh, it's got the following symptoms, and it's not multiple personalities. And so the idea that it's multiple personalities or split personality is just dismissed as confusion in the general public. And the psychiatry profession, uh, including all these experts on schizophrenia, act as if it's, the difference is very clear. Multiple personalities very rare. Most psychiatrists have never seen a case. And often these people say it's not only rare but pretty questionable that it's real at all. And so they just don't think about it on a day-in, day-out basis. 
but actually many of the symptoms are very similar. And I've done a whole bunch of different research studies on this. So if you go to a group of people who have a stable diagnosis of schizophrenia from a physician, psychiatrist, psychologist, and you interview them with a standardized interview that inquires about dissociative symptoms, 25 to 40% of these people who supposedly have schizophrenia will come up with a diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder. Other way around, if you, if you interview a large group of people with long-lasting, stable diagnoses of dissociative identity disorder, using a standardized interview, uh, as many as two-thirds will come up with some sort of uh, schizophrenia or schizophrenia-related diagnosis. So actually, the reality situation is that the official diagnostic criteria and the standardized interviews used for research can't tell the difference. Hmm. So what so, what so what are the differences and what are the things in common? Would be the next question. Yeah. So exactly. I'll, I'll launch into that. So Go over it. the things that are similar and that they have in common are auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. And the voices can either be coming from inside the head or from outside the head. They can be friendly, hostile. There's no real feature of the voices that leads you to automatically say for sure, oh, this is a schizophrenic voice as opposed to this is a dissociative voice. The only uh, research on that regard that's showing a bit of a hint is probably people with multiple personalities have more child voices than people with schizophrenia. Mm. But So hearing voices is actually a symptom in common, and uh, it is a whole long workshop to go into why I think voices are dissociative in general. But that's hmm. the, the number one point of confusion. And then sure. there's several other sets of symptoms. Um, and especially the voices are, if the voices are talking to each other or their voices keeping up a running commentary on the person's behavior, in the 1994 edition of the Diagnostic Manual, which is now going to be replaced by the fifth edition that's coming out in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. in the in the prior editions, it said if you have any one of those two symptoms, voices talking to each other or voices keeping up a running commentary on the person's behavior, then you have schizophrenia. That's the only symptom you require. It has to last for uh, six months. There has to be some distress and deterioration. But in terms of symptoms, you can get the diagnosis with just that symptom. So I and others have done research showing that actually those voices are more common in multiple personality than they are in schizophrenia. So the uh, yep, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask. You said you said um, specifically that child childlike voices are indicative of DID. Yeah, they're more common. Nothing okay. proves it one way or the other, but they're more frequent, more common in DID. DID being dissociative identity disorder mm-hmm. equals equals multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So other symptoms that are supposedly typical of schizophrenia but are also more common in the ID than in schizophrenia include what are called made thoughts, feelings, or actions. So that's where you feel like your thoughts, your feelings, or your actions are made or controlled by some power or force outside you. Mm-hmm. And a person who's floridly psychotic, whose thought processes are really mixed up, may interpret this as Martians, aliens, you know, pygmies, the government, whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the interpretation of the voices can be 
you're more fantastic than somebody with schizophrenia than somebody with DID. Uh, and the interpretation of these made thoughts or feelings can be more fantastic. So in DID, it's clearly the alter personalities influencing, controlling the out front person, the host personality from inside. Mm-hmm. It's a little, a little fuzzier what's going on in the case of schizophrenia, but it's the same symptom. It's often described in the same way. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, other symptoms of psychosis include having thoughts put into your mind, thoughts taken out of your mind, somebody else thinking thoughts inside your head. Mm-hmm. And these are all typical uh, DID symptoms because they're due to the other personalities thinking, talking, mm-hmm. and influencing the host personality out front. So, so those are the what, symptoms that are in common. Yeah. Would it be so, fair to say? Would it be fair to say right. that? Would it be fair to say that schizophrenia, with schizophrenia, generally speaking, the the voices or the different personalities are largely kept internal, heard internally, whereas with DID, they tend to come out and take on a life of their own externally more. Uh, yes and no. Uh, if that happens, then by definition, if like in therapy or just in the world, the voice comes over and talks either to the therapist mm-hmm. or to the husband or the girlfriend or or the John, if it's a prostitute with multiple personality, then that's just not schizophrenia. That's multiple personality. Mm-hmm. But, but the thing is, in the mental health field, there's many, many people who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia and the clinicians have never asked about or never noticed that the voices do come out and take control. Hmm. So the the thing that seems to be typical of schizophrenia more than of multiple personality is what are called the negative symptoms, negative symptoms of psychosis. So the positive symptoms of psychosis are things that people who are psychotic have that ordinary people don't, such as voices, delusions, agitation, mixed-up thinking, and the negative symptoms are things that normal people have that people with schizophrenia are missing. So that's a kind of burned out, empty, uh, no ambition, social withdrawal, kind of emptiness type symptoms. And those symptoms are more frequent, more common in schizophrenia than in DID. But it's just a matter of more frequent, more common, not like exclusive to one or the other. And then the other thing that you see in some cases of schizophrenia, but not all, is what's called thought disorder. And thought disorder is really jumbled up, mixed up thought processes. And when it gets really bad, you can't even follow the logic of one sentence to the next. And that, by and large, doesn't happen in dissociative identity disorder. And people with DID have more childhood trauma to a greater degree, but people with schizophrenia frequently have childhood trauma as well. So really the the key differentiating factors are when a person with schizophrenia has these predominant negative symptoms, really burned out, empty, no ambition, and you have this feeling like there's just nobody there. Um, And they have uh, really mixed up, jumbled up, obviously, quotes, insane thought processes that don't make sense. That's going to lean you towards schizophrenia. On the other hand, when the person's basic thought processes are pretty typical and normal, they have a rational way of looking at the world. They have more of these positive symptoms, fewer of the negative symptoms, and then you're leaning over towards multiple personality. And then the key thing is the amnesia. And 
And usually it can occur like just as a you know transitory symptom with all kinds of things. But people with multiple personality frequently have very well-defined discrete blank spells where it's at 10 in the morning, next thing they know it's 3 in the afternoon, hmm. and they can't account for what they've been doing or where they've been. And then they look in their closet and there's a whole uh, bunch of things that they bought at the at the mall with their credit card signature with handwriting that looks almost like theirs, but maybe not exactly. So they find evidence of things that they've done or people tell them about things they've done or sometimes they'll come to in a new location unable to remember how they got there. So these very well-formed, discrete blank spells, they just are not typical of schizophrenia at all. And it's not just that the person's like fallen over or passed out from drugs and alcohol or, or just sitting there tranced out. They're out doing things in the world, driving a car, shopping, interacting with people, talking. So when you get that symptom, that's really strongly leans you over towards a dissociative disorder and away from schizophrenia. So that might be a little more detail than you were hoping for. But. No, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. That was really good because it really makes you think about it. So. <coughs> it's I guess, absolutely amazing when you think about it. I guess we would focus more on MPD uh, and DID in, in this show. Uh, sure. From now we have clarified the differences and uh, similarities between schizophrenia and MPD. Uh, how do you acquire MPD? Uh, there seem to be four different ways that are not uh, exclusive. How do you become uh, someone suffering from a multi-personality disorder? Well, I, I have a scheme that's um, in one of my books called Four Pathways to Dissociative Identity Disorder. So the, the most common thing that we see is uh, really, really horrible, abusive, traumatic, neglectful childhoods, lots of family violence, uh, death of caretakers, the caretaker's absent because their substance abuse problems are out of control or they're in jail or just general chaos. And so lots and lots and lots of chronic severe trauma. And the idea is basically it's too overwhelming to cope with. So you imagine that there's somebody else inside who's dealing with this and dealing with that. And then, although that's not literally true, because literally there's only one person there, it becomes very emotionally and psychologically true. And so then it's a way of, it's sort of a divide and conquer strategy internally that you don't have to feel the full brunt of the trauma, deal with the full brunt of the trauma because, quote, somebody else is dealing with it. And that's the basic common thing that you see clinically a lot. And then there's, uh, so that's active abuse. And then the second pathway is what I call a neglect pathway, which is it's not so much what people are doing to you that they shouldn't do, it's what, what they're, they're not, not doing, doing that they yeah. should. And so the basic, it doesn't have to be like starving to death level neglect. In many families, you know, there's a roof over the person's head. But the parents are just very emotionally disconnected, you know, mm. very involved in their own lives. And there's just no real love and nurturing coming across. Now, that by itself uh, has to be pretty extreme. I mean, we don't see cases where it's just that going on too often. But we see some. And then the... Uh, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to ask you, um, as far as I'm aware, there are some cases where some people have no history of trauma but still have DID. Well, then we get into... So quick answer is yes. And then the, but the, the next question is, okay, well, what's our definition of trauma? Mm. So 
there's certainly in the literature, uh, I've published a couple of series myself, because you average the five largest series in the literature. And overall, the percentage of cases reporting childhood physical abuse or sexual abuse or both ranges from about 88% to 95%. So now you have to remember there's probably some people in there who, in fact, remember being abused. They just don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're you're somewhere in the ballpark of people who are in treatment between 5 and 12% are not reporting physical abuse or sexual abuse. But then in these research studies that we didn't ask about uh, other forms of family violence, watching mom being beat up, and then we didn't ask about all the neglect aspect of things. And then you also can have trauma that's uh, not perpetrated by the family. For instance, if you grow up in a war zone, mm-hmm. uh, if you live in a country where huge percentage of the adult population has AIDS and you're like the primary caretaker for the family when you're 12 because everybody else is dead. Uh, So that's trauma, but it's not abuse. And then Mm -hmm. there's also sometimes, which we don't see in North America so much, but we uh, see people with really serious chronic medical trauma where they've had multiple surgeries or multiple severe diseases uh, so it can be other types of trauma besides sexual abuse, physical abuse. And then you have to add in the neglect. But then you get down to a few people who uh, just don't seem to have, and this is now we're in a very small percentage of the total, just don't seem to have anything really severe or the up fire or the ordinary. It's a small mm-hmm. percentage of cases. And then <clears throat> you're looking at kind of two possibilities, or three basically. One is, this is just a person who is very genetically or or family-wise primed to have a dissociative disorder and didn't require any significant trauma to kind of develop it. That's one possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Another possibility is it's what's called a factitious disorder, which is the third pathway to multiple personality. And so if you can figure out it's a factitious disorder, then by definition it's not actually multiple personality. And factitious is basically somebody who's consciously faking an illness to get some kind of gain, like to mm-hmm. get out of housework, to get some compensation. Yeah. Or they might be doing it just to get into a relationship with the doctor because they don't have any relationships mm-hmm. except when they're in the role of being a patient. So that's factitious disorder. And then they wouldn't have any necessarily any real trauma in theory. Mm-hmm. But actually in reality, people with factitious disorders almost always have horrible childhoods and that's why they've gotten themselves into this desperate situation where the only way they can be a person of value and the only way they can bond anybody is by being in a sick role. So that's a that's kind of different disorder in a way. So you but you can't have to be insane to pretend you're insane? Yeah. But Well not not insane insane, but certainly disturbed. Yeah. Yeah. But so conversely then um there are obviously probably a lot of people who have been traumatized quite severely even and do not get the ID, do not develop the ID. Right, and I did a, a project in Winnipeg in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, where I surveyed, I didn't personally, but the, all the research team went out and actually knocked on people's houses and did interviews in households. And uh, of all the people who'd been sexually abused in the in the sample, which is 502 people, 
in the total sample, um, of those who reported childhood sexual abuse, only 20% had any kind of dissociative disorder. Mm-hmm. So, so clearly, the majority of people who have been traumatized don't develop uh, any kind of dissociative disorder, and only a small percentage will develop DID. And that's just kind of the way life is. It's uh, you, know, yeah. you can have a whole bunch of people who are traumatized, only a certain percent will develop an eating disorder. Certain percent yeah. will become depressed. Certain percent will develop alcoholism. Yeah, and that's just just kind of what they bring to the table genetically. So that that suggests that there is a genetic component to, or probably, or there may well be a genetic component to uh, DID and even schizophrenia, but it's also well activated by social circumstances. Yeah, by their environment. Yeah. Right. Is it a mix? Um, Basically, you know, this, there's this idea of it's either genetic or it's social, but maybe it's a mix. Yeah, generally speaking, in most things, it's a mix. For instance, if you look at Michael Jordan, he's obviously genetically endowed to be an incredibly good athlete. Uh-huh. But then he had to be born in the United States mm-hmm. in a in a century where basketball existed. If the, exactly the yeah. same genetic person was born 200 years ago, he wouldn't have been a basketball player. Mm. So in general, in life, it's an interaction of genes and environment. The way I look at it, which we can get into in more detail if you want, but the way I mm-hmm. look at it, and I've written at book length about this, is the genetic part of mental disorders is overemphasized by the profession quite a mm-hmm. lot compared compared to what the evidence actually supports. And the the genetic component of mental disorders, and even the head of the National Institute of Mental Health agrees with this actually in a recent statement, the genetic component of mental disorders doesn't kind of map directly onto the DSM categories. So it's not like there's a genetic risk for schizophrenia and then a totally different set of genes for bipolar and another total mm-hmm. set. That really, it looks like there's a many, many genes that each contribute a little bit to having mental health problems in general, not you know that steer you directly towards one of the diagnoses in particular. Mm-hmm. And it's it still looks like the environment in the form of, mostly in the form of psychological trauma, but also, you know, what your mother eats, what kind of drugs she takes, what kind of infection she gets during pregnancy, all kinds of things come into play. Well, it seems that there's a there's a there's an active denial, you know, of the fact that in, in any kind of sense that there may be some sort of, you know, traumatic thing about life that that you know, why are you messed up? It must be that there's some genetic flaw in you because the world is perfect type of thing. It's kind of a, a denial that, you know, there are traumatic situations going on, that, you know, there's child molestation going on, that there's, you know, people growing up in war-torn areas. There's this, this sort of active denial of it. And uh, well, that's what it seems to me. Well, when I was, uh, so I was born in Canada, grew up in Canada, went to medical school, did my psychiatry training in Canada, and moved down to Texas in 1991. So I was in my psychiatry training in Winnipeg from 1981 to 1985. And so the main textbook that I used is called the Comprehensive Textbook of Psychiatry. And I still have it on my shelf. It's three volumes. It's like 3,300 pages. Absolutely everything you need, need to know about psychiatry is in there. Way at the back, there's a section called Topics of Special Interest. That's kind of like stuff that isn't really relevant, but they throw it in at the back. And one of the chapters and topics of special interest is called incest. It's very, very short. So this is 1980. And in there, there's one paragraph 
talking about how common incest is in North America, with a reference to a 1955 study saying it's one family out of a million. So these were the scientific medical facts that I was fed in my training. And the idea that you would see an incest victim was highly unlikely. Hmm. When, when in fact the psychiatric wards are full of people with all kinds of trauma, with incest. Yeah. And so that the level of denial was the one in a million, it's actually more than one in a hundred. Yeah. So the profession was out by 10,000 times. So wow. it's, it wasn't just a little bit of denial. It was massive systematic denial for most of the 20th century. And then mm-hmm. you'll still see, as I mentioned, on a, if you go to just Google schizophrenia and go to various websites that offer you information on schizophrenia, almost all of them say it has nothing to do with parenting, nothing to do with childhood. But yeah. there's a whole series of studies just in the last five to seven years showing that childhood trauma in particular childhood sexual abuse is a very big risk factor for psychosis. And these are studies mm-hmm. mostly in England with like 5,000, 10,000 people, very big studies. So the denial is, you know, since 1980, started to break down you know, bit by bit by bit, still against massive resistance. And so people now will, people, nobody disputes that post-traumatic stress disorder is caused by trauma because that's part of the definition. Yeah. And you know, the borderline personality disorder is an example where the role of childhood trauma is it's denied by some experts, but it's pretty well agreed upon by most experts in borderline personality disorder. But when you get the schizophrenia and bipolar mood disorder, in North America, most of the experts still say it doesn't have anything to do with trauma. Yeah. I mean, on the on the childhood sexual abuse thing, I was trying to find some figures and there's various different figures out there from various different associations in the U.S., for example, but they most of them were putting it at somewhere between, you know, 25 up to 50% of kids who uh, I, are like, I, likely to be abused by, by a parent. I think 50 is high, personally, but it all yeah. depends, on again, on the definition. And yeah. so the the surveys that tend to be 25% even pushing higher, they're including anything and everything. So like one episode of being fondled uh, outside your clothes at age 14, you're a victim of sexual abuse. Okay. Um, when you restrict the definition to uh, unwanted, coercive, uh, digital penetration, oral sex, uh, full uh, vaginal penetration, so that's an obvious big time. Nobody's going to quibble about the definition of sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're down probably uh, 5% of boys, 10% of girls. Yeah. So that that's the low end, though. And that's still... I mean, that's, that's a lot. It's, it's, it's still, still, millions it's still and pandemic. Millions. I mean, it's, it's still if that, pandemic, yeah. If that was uh, an illness, age, whatever, and 10% of the population had it, I don't think oh, it's a pandemic, yeah. It would be defined as a pandemic. It's I mean, high. It only includes the patients or the the person who remember the event. Who remember and, and who are willing to talk about it. Yeah. 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 Well, um, uh, the flip side of it is today with things emerging, you know, well, in some cases, 
they do emerge on a nationwide scale. Joe and I are, are, are from Ireland, where in the past 10 years there have been uh, public investigations into the sheer scale of sexual abuse by the Catholic Church. Which is massive. It's just unbelievable. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands, generation after generation, in a country with a population at the time of 3 million. Extrapolate yeah. that outwards. And you're looking. And here, at, here, you thought the troubles were your main trouble. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, yeah, it was from <laughs> within. Well, on the flip side of that, then, with these things emerge from time to time, and pedophilia scandals and whatnot, then you've got this politically correct obsession that's somehow infected people in a way it, it, from the other end of the scale, where the slightest, oh, he looked at me the wrong way, I'm going to report him to my employer. And that gets marked down as a case of, well, not sexual abuse, but harass, sexual harassment. Sexual harassment. And well, that's further. This, what is, what it's, a, it's always a balancing act in which way you're going to err. So historically, we've erred on, for childhood sexual abuse, we, psychiatry, have erred massively far over towards denial, not towards over-reporting. So then when you correct the pendulum back the other way, naturally you're going to get a little overshoot sometimes, and you're going to get false positive reporting where people jumped, oh, this is a sexual abuse case, you'll get too fast. And this is not hard science, so there's going to be errors in both directions. It's a question of trying to minimize the errors in both directions, which you'll never be perfect on. Same with sexual harassment. When I I was uh, in Canada, I remember a medical student, female, very attractive female medical student who's doing a rotation in my hospital coming up to talk to me about relentless sexual abuse by a powerful physician in the faculty. And there really was nothing she could do about it because if she said anything, she would be kicked out of medical school, literally. And so this is the late 80s because the denial was total, the control was total, nobody would ever be believed, and the retaliation would just be to the max. So then we've corrected that, but then that leaves you open to you know, false accusations and, you know, and the process, act that goes yeah. on. Yeah, and in the process, unfortunately, trivializing the deeper real issues and further hiding them or obscuring right. them. Yeah, often, Co- yeah. Colin, we, you listed the first three ways of acquiring um, MPD, which are not mutually exclusive. What is the fourth way? You call it uh, iatrogenic? Good, iatrogenic. Yeah, good memory and good listening skills there. <laughs> so <laughs> iatrogenic is where all the controversy is. So that's just a Greek word, iatro, meaning doctor, genic, means creator, cause. So that's multiple personality that's created or caused by the therapist. But this is going to lead us into the mentoring candidate discussion. So... Mm-hmm. Exactly. We don't, I've seen a few cases, like under 10, and I've seen some cases as an expert witness where I've been the expert witness for the person suing the therapist for iatrogenic multiple personality, and I concluded that this actually was an example of where the multiple personality didn't exist before the person got tangled up with the therapist. And through suggestion and hypnosis and medications and um putting them in a unit with lots of other people with multiple personality, the therapist unwittingly sort of cooked up this multiple personality that didn't pre-exist. And then when the person gets disentangled from the therapist, 
usually it dissolves fairly rapidly. Hmm. So now there's um, there's some people who say that's true of every single case, which I think is absurd. But I have seen some examples of that. So what does it take to do that? So you you can't just you know you're an outpatient therapist. The person walks in and says I'm here because I've been binging and vomiting, and then two sessions later the person's got 34 personalities and a huge long history of sexual abuse. It doesn't happen that fast or that easily. So the cases I saw, the person was, so this is back uh, late 80s, early 90s. And the reason we're not seeing this so much currently is because managed care in the United States has come in and massively clamped down on length of stay in psych hospitals. So mm-hmm. you can only stay, you know, days or a few weeks most most hospitals, most insurance policies, which is not long enough to create this theatrogenic multiple personality. But back in the 80s, early 90s, when there was these insurance policies with $3 million limits and you could just stay and stay and stay, people would stay for a year or two. Uh, Their mail would be monitored and censored uh, by the staff. They wouldn't go outside on the grounds. They'd spend very long periods of time in seclusion rooms, sometimes in physical restraints. Uh, they would be, quote, interrogated, which was actually therapy. But the massive suggestion, hypnosis, asking, 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 didn't this happen, didn't that happen, what about this, what about that? And kind of fishing for and suggesting that there are different people inside. Uh, lots of psych drugs. So it was basically a um, sort of like being at Gitmo. But under, under the guise of being in a psych hospital, so it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, but it it can be done. And uh, I guess if incompetent doctors can involuntarily create MPDs or alter personalities, we can wonder how possible it is when doctors having the relevant facilities, techniques, drugs, resources can create personalities. personalities alter personalities that uh, perfectly fit uh, their objectives. Exactly. And so when I presented this idea at at conferences in the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Association, I got a fairly frosty reception from my colleagues because they were under attack from an organization called the False Memory Syndrome Foundation where uh, people who are on the professional board of that foundation attack multiple personality in the literature, they testify in court cases, then they're saying it's all inactrogenic, it's all malpractice. So naturally, people in the dissociation field weren't very happy with those guys. And when I started saying, well, look, some of our colleagues are, or have been creating multiple personality by accident mm-hmm. under conditions that are the following. My, my colleagues in the dissociative disorder field just didn't want to hear it because they didn't want to, like, say there was even the most minute kernel of truth to what the false memory people were saying. So it was very polarized, very black and white. You're either with this group or you're with that group. Uh, But my point was twofold. One is, if we see multiple personality arising just naturally in the family, what are the conditions that give rise to it? Well, you're trapped in the family, you can't escape, you're just a little kid, and there's massive trauma. What are the conditions we see in a therapy gone really wrong? Well, you have to be trapped in a situation. You're basically dependent on the hospital and the therapist literally for your food and your roof over your head. And there's 
not uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, but massive control of the environment for a long period of time, and input in the form of suggestion, 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 suggestion. And then what is the conditions we see in the CIA mind control or military mind control research described in the documents? I'm not just making this up. This is very clear in the documents. Mm-hmm. And it's the same sort of thing. You don't just walk up to the soldier and say, uh, hey, we'd like you to imagine there's somebody else inside and you want to go on a mission tomorrow. There's a whole training period. And in the MKUltra, Bluebird, Autochoke, CIA mind control documents, it describes sort of what goes on by mistake in the psych hospital. Sensory deprivation, sensory isolation, hypnosis, drugs, codes interrogation, which in a therapy situation is called therapy. In the mind, mind control situation, it's called uh, brainwashing or mind control. Now we call it enhanced interrogation. So there's mm-hmm. different names for it, mm-hmm. but very, very similar process. And so my point was, this is very useful for the field as a defense because it sort of sets the threshold for how much control you have to have over the patient or client for how long and what you have to do to create the autogenic multiple personality. And therefore, if you haven't done that, you can use that as a defense. And then we're going to tip the scale more toward this is a case of factitious where the person has faked multiple personality and they're blaming the therapist because they want a big payoff at court. Hmm. But nevertheless, my, my colleagues didn't like the idea. Yeah, I can imagine. I bet because, as it turns out, quite a lot of them have something to hide, including some of your supervisors. Uh, that, that's a, co- a question because a commonly held belief is that those uh, CIA mind control experiments were just conducted by a few rogue psychiatrists that were acting in a secret basement and... Uh, that's the first uh, commonly held belief, and another commonly held belief is that anyway didn't let lead to really tangible results. Have we ever have we ever heard that one before? What? A few bad apples. Yeah, a few bad apples. It's sort of it's a modification of the lone gunman, basically. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a very common thing that you hear all the time. That it was a few rogue psychiatrists happened a long time ago, and anyway, they didn't even have any success. And um, John Ginninger, who is the lead psychologist on MKUltra, yeah. said exactly that at the U.S. Senate testimony in the mid-1970s. But he was the lead psychologist on MKUltra who was directly involved in mind control brainwashing. And the, the Bluebird was the first program in 1950, which rolled over into M- Artichoke, which rolled into MK Search, uh, MKUltra, which rolled into MK Search which ran till the early 70s. So there's a, and then everything's classified after that. So this John, John Ginninger was directly involved in the programs, and the program documents in great detail described successfully creating mentoring candidates and using them in simulation exercises where they worked perfectly. Mentoring candidate being an artificially created multiple personality. So he knew perfectly well that these people were successfully created and operational. He's just basically lying. Yeah, this is a pattern that repeats, isn't it? It's clear uh, yeah. lying. The, the ability to say one thing and do completely the opposite. But the, general, the general pattern. So 
I started hearing stories from patients when I moved to Texas. I wasn't really interested in this before 1991. And then patients started telling me I was taken to a military base when I was a kid. I was taken to some kind of hospital laboratory, and all these experiments were done by doctors with lab coats, and they created multiple personality parts. And so I thought, hmm. And that's how I got into this and started looking into it. And read, I read quite a bit about the history of the CIA and intelligence and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a general pattern, I think, if we look at multiple personality, we look at paranormal, extrasensory perception, remote viewing, psychic spying, or uh, we look at UFOs. Those are examples I use. I think mm-hmm. that the the intelligence strategy is to fuel both sides of the debate. Mm. So in the, in the UFO debate, it doesn't really matter if we assume that there are, in fact, aliens piloting those aircraft or we assume it's all experimental military craft. It's either way. I think the strategy is to fuel both the believer side and the disbeliever side to have a whole great big debate, which is the whole thing is the distraction and cover strategy. Mm. And I think the same with the paranormal. There's uh, people from a disinformation perspective who debunk the paranormal, and there's people who believe in and support the reality of the paranormal. And the whole debate distracts us from the fact that the CIA military invested many millions of dollars in psychic spying, which is declassified and admitted to. Mm -hmm. And the, the same with multiple personality. There's all these guys from the False Memory Syndrome Foundation who are saying it's all false memories, we just cooked up in the therapy, it's all the actogenic multiple personality. Well, but at least cro- two of those the- guys are documented CIA mind control contractors in this mentoring candidate programs. Are you talking about Helen, Helen Cooter? Is that right? Uh, uh, Martin uh, Orne and Charlie West. Okay, I was thinking of um, Bluebird. This is from your book. I think Bluebird was approved by the first CIA director, Roscoe Hitch, Helen Cooter. He was also yeah, a member right. of. He was also on the uh, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, but he was for UFO disclosure at the time. So I don't right. know if that makes. There's but people on both cro- sides. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. There's people on both sides of the debate, but that itself is part of the strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it brings up the kind of question as well to me, which is uh, talking about the psychiatrists who are more or less treating patients um, in these hospitals that was basically torture or similar to the kind of process that then evolved into creating um, ensuring candidates or people with DID creating DID. Uh, which came first? Was it the uh, was it the psychi- was it the the doctors who just stumbled on this and realized that this could be done because of their ham-fisted, brutal way of treating patients, or was it that the that the intel agencies came on, came in and kind of directed them in this, pushed them in this direction? I mean, have uh, you any... Well, I, I don't know for a fact, but I have thoughts on that subject because I thought about it a lot. So, in general, what's, if you look at the history of 1950 to the present in CIA military mind control experimentation and contracting, it wasn't just a few rogue uh, psychiatrists somewhere because... The medical schools that where MKUltra contracts took place include Harvard, Cornell, UCLA, Tulane, Columbia. John it goes on and on and on. 
Johns Hopkins, all these major places, and the individual contractors, psychiatrists and psychologists who are cleared at Top Secret, include editors of major journals, uh, top well-known figures in the field. It's a whole network of uh, that's at the core of academic psychiatry. It's not just a Mm -hmm. few lunatics in the basement at all. Yeah, and this this is people with top secret clearance, so it's clearly institutionalized, systematic, and pervasive. And there's a lot of contracting into the academic community. If you look at MK Ultra, which ran from '54 to '63, um, about a third of the contracts were just chemical procurement type contracts, biological chemical weapons, hallucinogens, and so on, and nothing, no research or academic part. A third of them were kind of bland, general contracts with funneled through front organizations called cutouts, where the guy receiving the grant at the time, I think, legitimately did not know it was CIA money. And they were just trying to shed some light on this topic or that topic, or they were beginning a relationship with the person and would he would get clearance a few years down the road sort of thing. And then the third were top secret cleared direct mind control, mentoring candidate program type contracts. Mm-hmm. So there's so there's various types of contracts, but many, many, many of them are in academia in the major institutions. And then a lot of the experiments, a slightly sanitized version of this published in the mainstream medical and psychiatric literature. I oh, think, yeah, it's but I, I can't I can't prove, but I think after MK Church was shut down in the early seventies I think most of the contracting shifted to the private sector and out of academia just because uh, for security purposes, basically. And so then uh, the psychiatrists and psychologists who are involved in that now are are less likely to be the academic psychiatrists, more likely to be private practice psychiatrists. And we know at Guantanamo Bay there's a behavioral science consultation team that goes in there Mm-hmm. which is psychologists, psychiatrists, directly involved in the enhanced interrogations. So there definitely are currently actively involved psychiatrists and psychologists, but we can't identify them because it's all classified. Yes. So and the, the net outcome is I think that the cases that I was involved in were was actual colleagues um, that I knew, like I met at meetings. I didn't see any evidence that any of them were directly contracted with the CIA it looked like most of them were kind of just fumbling and bumbling and doing it by accident. But, well, let me get you know, let, 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 let me give you just a little example. Hi, I'm Laura. Uh, yeah, of of some some something that I observed. My husband uh, is a physicist and he's been an academic uh, for 35 years, 40 years. And when he was when he came to Florida from Poland, um, he was working at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And they apparently had some sort of little recruiting program, and it got around that he was looking for a permanent job of some sort other than teaching. And you know, one person to another, you know, this this kind of got around. He was asking, and then he was invited to meet with a couple of of uh, uh, members of the department, and they had a project for him to work on for a private contractor. And to make a long story short. You know, this was uh, nuclear uh, detection with some kind of uh, um, pro- uh, programming. And 
he ended up, after a year or two working for a subcontractor, then being invited to go ahead and go through his naturalization process so that he could get a security clearance. Right. So it was like it was like little step by step, you know. What can you do? You know, what can you perform? What can you produce? And of course, at that point, we just kind of opted out, said no way, because we know where this is going. Right. So I think that this may happen for psychiatrists or psychologists. You know, they want something other than teaching, or they or they want something other than you know just private practice necessarily where they're grinding out the same thing every day all day long, mm-hmm. and they start asking around, and somebody. Somebody's there to fulfill their need. That's what I think. Right. Uh, the only point I was, I agree totally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure if you go to, well, basically go to Boston, when you're standing on the <clears> river there looking at Harvard, and there's MIT, and then around the corner is this university and that university, it's just this amazing concentration of intellectual power. But you're going to, especially at MIT, you'll find lots and lots of, uh, military CIA contracting going on all the time, no question. Um, and there's got to be contracting into the mental health field. It's just a question to who and where currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, but but at the same time, I think that the people who would go into it full bore, they would be actively seeking it. They know it's out there. I mean, you know, we didn't realize exactly where it was going until it got there. And, right. But I think there are those who actively know it, and they're actively seeking it, and I think they're actively seeking some uh, ways or means of, um, you know, gratifying impulses to power or control yeah. over others, or they're uh, they're looking to make lots and lots of money, which is another avenue of gratifying their impulses to power and control mm-hmm. over others. And there's al- there's also there's also obviously the and this has been going on since well forever for most of the last century, but definitely since the Second World War and during the Cold War, and now with the so-called War on Terror, there's the whole hook of national security and doing this for your country and getting right. people via, via the patriotism kind of thing. You know, you can help your country in this way. And that cloak and dagger stuff. Yeah, and also the cloak and dagger James Bond type of thing. I mean, it's it's all pretty puerile in a way and that people get get get, get hooked into it in that way and, and, and end up committing really evil deeds based on that kind of a really... Let me let me ask a question. What kind of programs were going on, say, in uh, Navy contractors' uh, mind control programs in, say, the early 1950s, like 1954 and 55? Well, the U.S. Office uh, of Naval Research was one of the primary mind control contractors, and they contracted oh. to... Pardon me? I said, oh, geez. Yeah, it's the Office of Naval Research. And uh, one of the people that they contracted to is a neurosurgeon at Yale named Jose Delgado. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, thrilling. And I have, a, I have a copy of his book. Uh, I do, too. Toward a, to, and a really catchy title, Toward a Psycho... Physical Control of the Mind. Subtitle, right. Toward a Psycho-Civilized Society. And I also have a series of his uh, papers in different journals and also copies of his contracts. So, with for U.S. Office of Naval Research. And what he was doing was, and there's a guy at Tulane doing this, it's a project at UCLA, there's a team at Harvard. Uh, he would put brain electrodes into the brains of children as young as five years old mm-hmm. for no therapeutic purpose. And then uh, there'd be wires attached to the electrodes, which then go to a trend, uh, control box. 
and depending on which button you pushed on the box, that would activate an electrode, which would activate a certain part of the person's brain. And in, uh, in the books and papers, you see a 16-year-old girl with a bandage on her head who's got the electrodes in place, but he made the technical advance of uh, you didn't have to have the wires going directly from the port in the skull to the box. You could use a radio transmitter to transmit the signal. And depending on which button he's pushing on the transmitter box, she's either staring off into space with an uh, empty grin on her face, she's pounding furiously on the wall, or she's doing <laughs> something normal. And a six-year-old boy, when he would stimulate, this is just a regular boy, uh, but when he would stimulate a certain electrode, the boy would say that he feels like he's a girl and say that he wants to marry Dr. Delgado. And then you can just look on YouTube. So it's Dr. Jose Delgado. Um, you could just put bow in a ring or a bow ring or controlling a bow. There's a video that comes up showing he's in a bow ring holding a transmitter box and the bull's got electrodes implanted in his brain and comes charging at him. And he just pushes button A, B, or C and the bull just stops and turns away. And then in his... Uh, it's uh, cats, mostly cats and monkeys in the uh, various papers and journals. In those papers, he refers to the cats that have these brain electrodes and he can make them walk here or there everywhere. He refers to them as mechanical toys. Hmm. And so well, just, the human beings were also mechanical toys. To him, yeah. To him, yeah. Let me, let me, let me take advantage of you, please. May I? Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I had a... I had a very strange uh, incident that occurred when I was very young, and I'd like to just go through it really quick. Okay, because sure. It, it's, I, I think it's semi-related. When I was uh, three years old, my mother married uh, for the second time, and she married a, a, a Navy guy and mm-hmm. who she met in uh, Orlando. I was born and raised in Florida. Um, we moved to Jacksonville, and I recall... Uh, several very strange incidents uh, at the time that uh, I'm not going to go into, but the thing that happened was the, the the guy that she was married to started acting in very strange ways. Like he would, uh, she, you know, she found him hiding in the closet, you know, in a fetal position. He set a fire under the gas tank out behind the house. Uh, he slashed his wrist. Various things that were going on that she was concealing from us, you know, she was trying to cope with this, and then she found out she couldn't get a divorce from him because he was crazy, you know, oh. because he wasn't legally competent, right, to sign a divorce paper. Oh, but to make long, yeah, so they got separated, and I was playing on our porch one day, and and he came came by the house, and you know, because he appeared to be very fond of me, but I can swear, you know, I have really good recall of, of you know, back to being in a high chair and eating grits and eggs. Um, but he asked me, uh, did I want a new car? And I said, yes. And he said, what do you, what kind of car do you want? I said, I wanted a yellow and black convertible. A few days later, he arrived. I was playing on the porch and he had a yellow and black convertible. And so he asked me if I wanted to go for a ride in the car. And I said, yes. Went for a ride, went a long way, uh, driving through long straight road, trees, blah, 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 turn off on a dirt road, go through another pine forest come to a big clearing with a little white building in the middle of this clearing. We go. There were three people standing on the porch when we arrived, and they were in khaki, uh, the two men in a khaki uniform. 
and a woman in a white dress, a nurse type outfit. And they said, We've really you know, we've been looking forward to meeting you. And I'm not imagining this, this really happened. Right. So we went inside and sat at a dining room table or what seemed to be a dining room table and they asked me lots of questions. I don't remember the questions and they said, You must be tired. Uh, you need to take a nap. Took me into this room and there was a like a stainless steel crib and I was thinking, you know, I was three years old, I was too big for a crib. But they said, well, you know, this is the bed we have here. So they were going to put me in this crib. I got in the crib. And they said, here, you have a bottle. And I was thinking, you know, well, I'm too big for a bottle. I don't I don't drink a bottle anymore. They gave me the bottle. And, uh, the, you know, the next thing I know, I was uh, asleep. And I don't remember anything until I was back in the car with my erstwhile stepfather. And we were... Uh, driving like crazy at high speed through the uh, city of Jacksonville, pursued by the police, flashing blue, you know, or flashing lights, red lights at the time. And uh, he ended up uh, turning a corner too fast, skidded out out of control, landed in somebody's front lawn up against a palm tree. You know, I hit the dashboard, you know, messed up my face. The policeman came and took me out of the car, and you know, I was checked out by a doctor, and then they took me to my, you know, took me home to my mother. <clears throat> so that's what I remember. Uh, the um, the the backstory was was that I was gone at least three or four days. Oh. And the reason we know that is because it took that long for my my grandfather was working in the Bahamas at the time, and my mother called my grandmother in Tampa, who called uh, called my grandfather. They sent a messenger out to him on the island. He got on a plane, you know, flew through to, you know, Nassau and to Tampa and then up to Jacksonville, et cetera, and started making a big stink. And that's when uh, somewhere along there, you know, the guy had me in the car and he was driving and he was wanted and so on and so forth. Because, of course, when my mother complained by herself, they said, you know, you you can't file anything because he is your husband. He is legally entitled to take the child. Right. So... That was the only period in my entire life that I had a blank spot. And have you and ever bothered... filled any of that in at all? What? Pardon? Have you ever have you ever filled in any of the missing? Oh time? yes, yes, oh. yes. I'm, yes, I'm gonna. Many many years went by, and this bothered me, bothered me, bothered me. You know, and then, you know, and I worried about sexual abuse and all these kind of. But I didn't have any any kind of any kind of problems that would tend to. Um, indicate something like sexual abuse. I mean, I knew lots of girlfriends who had sexual abuse, and they would tell me their stories, and I would try to see if there was some kind of stir in my heart or in my mind or my psyche that said, oh, you know, that's frightening to me, or I identify with that. But there was was never anything. So finally, um, when I, uh, after I'd married my my current husband, we decided that, uh, you know, we were going to try to work on this, try to find out, because it was really worrying me. So we went to a hypnotherapist who was supposed to be very good, and she did her best, but she couldn't get anywhere because I was sitting there the whole time, you know, thinking, you know, geez, you know, why don't you ask this question? Why don't you ask that question? You know, because that would help me get there. That would help me get there. You know, just help me, please. Ask the right question. And she wouldn't. She was. It was like free formal, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you feel? And I, I wanted somebody to ask me the question, but she didn't. But what a few question days, did you want to ask? Ask me, for God's sakes, what happened? 
she wouldn't even, you know, she couldn't even do that. So a few days later or a week later, I went to sleep thinking about it, and I dreamed what I think happened. And it was so intense and it was so horrifying that I woke up, you know, just absolutely blubbering and screaming and crying, you know, just the blubbery stuff. And uh, I told my husband what happened, and I says what I think happened. Is I re- in the dream, I was taken as, as this child into an empty room, and it was just a, an empty room with uh, no furnishings or anything, maybe a few objects or something on the floor, but I don't remember exactly. And they gave me an injection, and then the walls started to move. They started to melt. And I realized, you know, that... In my dream was telling me that what they had done to me was they had given me LSD. And then the next thing was was that I was in this scenario as it was like created and it was in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And they brought me in as a new kid and introduced me to everybody and everything was all friendly and everybody was nice and the teacher was there and so on and so forth. So I'm sitting there and there was a little girl across the way. We passed notes back and forth as little kids do. And the next thing that happened was a bunch of military commandos, you know, just came into the room and all of a sudden broke into the room and started shooting everybody. And there were people being shot up in blood and gore and bits and everything. And at the end of it all, everybody was dead except me. And then the scenario melted away. The next scenario was um, that I was in a park. There was an old man. I sat down. He was telling me a story. There was a dog. I petted the dog. Everything was nice. The military commando showed up again, shot everybody, and everybody was dead except me. Hmm. And the, the third one, the third scenario, that melted away. The third scenario was with people were in line. They were in line to be assigned tasks of some sort. And I was in this line, and I saw the little, same little girl that I had seen in the classroom in the next line. And, and what, she, was set, what was the setting that time? Well, at this, at this point, it was like... Um, Oh, geez, it was almost like we were going into a a building. We were lined up <clears throat> outside, and we were in. And everybody was supposed to be perfectly in line, keep their heads down, not look, not talk, not not do anything. And so I was standing in this line, and this little girl was in this other line, and she had a piece of paper, and she was going to pass me a note. And I said, and I hissed at her, "Don't pass me a note. If you pass me a note, they'll kill everybody." And she did it anyway. And sure enough, the soldiers showed up, you know, machine guns, blood, gore, and guts. Everybody's dead except me. And then what was said to me at the end of each of these scenarios was, this is what will happen. You know, this is what will happen to anybody that you try to help. They'll die. And I just, you know, I mean, it just, it just... It just struck me as such a crazy and insane thing, and I, so I told my husband about it, and I said, well, you know, I don't know if it's accurate or how distorted it is. It came in a dream, but I'm fairly certain that something along that line, you know, LSD with created scenarios right. were were uh, executed. What the purpose was or, uh, you know, if this was anything along the line of what was actually being done at that time, you know, because I've never, I've never talked to anybody that, had any knowledge about it that could tell me or give me an answer you know what's what's the point of this kind of thing i mean i was you know three years old for god's sakes right 
<clears throat> so, what and do you now, think? so what do I think? Mm. Um, yeah. Well, I think several different things. Uh, one is, first of all, there's no way, assuming it happened, that you, well, I see no reason to assume it didn't happen. I have uh, actual. It may, you have what? I have a, I have proof that it did happen. I have letters from my grandfather, uh, oh, written really? at the time, uh, where he was talking about the incident. So I mean, and I've talked to, and I'm, my husband and I, my current husband and I, talked to my mother about it. Um, okay, so you've done some investigation. Years, yeah, we've done some investigation. Yeah, and my brother well, also. So let's just forget about the did it happen or didn't happen question then. So the first thing I would say is, um, which doesn't make any difference in the end, really, it may not have been LSD uh, just because of the number of days you were gone and how extreme it sounds. I would say it could have been another hallucinogen such as BZ, which is Mm -hmm. letter B, letter Z, which is a a for sure existing thing that was tested at Edgewood Arsenal and other locations and it would put you on a trip for three or four days. Uh-huh. So LSD was is actually the mildest of a collection of mind control drugs that were tested extensively by the CIA and the military. So it may not actually be LSD, but that doesn't really matter. Um, second comment I would make is it's it's not unlike stories I've heard from multiple other people. Mm. So I'm not going, oh, my God, this is, I've never heard this before. I'm going, yeah, yeah. yeah similar to what I've heard before. Okay, Have you good. ever read a, a book called The Control of Candy Jones? Mm-mm, no. Yeah, you should just oh, wait definitely minute, wait get that. Wait a minute. I've read it. It was serialized in a magazine, wasn't it? Playboy, actually. <laughs> yeah, because. <laughs> that's why she hasn't read it. That's yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> but your husband's read it. It also made an appearance in, in a book series called Mysteries of Mind, Space, and Time. Oh, that's yeah, right. Sure. That's where I, ha- I have it in Mind, Space, and Time. I have 26 volumes. Uh, okay. but, you might enjoy rereading that just because it's yeah, uh, the, in many ways similar to what you're describing. The kicker um, is that my mother went down with my grandfather to press charges against my stepfather uh, uh-huh. You know, after I had been recovered. And when they got there, the sheriff or the police chief or whoever told him that he'd been released to the Navy who came to claim him. Yeah. Well, uh, so I have a few more comments and thoughts. Uh, and I can't give you all the answers, obviously, but... Oh, no. <laughs> one one thing is, that's a lot of effort to go to. So I wonder why there wasn't any follow-up. That's kind of weird. That well, there's... Like, you there weren't recruited one, into a special uh, well, program one thing after is, is school my, or anything like that? No, my my grandfather took and, you know, he was kind of rather paranoid after this, and he put us sure. basically in hiding. Uh-huh. Okay. So, that was smart. So that was, I. you know, we grew up, my brother and I grew up more or less, uh, I mean, the, the big paranoid thing about it was not so much about this the stepfather guy. Of course, he was freaking crazy, you know, and they were concerned right, about right. that. But, uh, you know, they, they they just worried that he would come stalking and, uh, you know, kidnap me again. So right. I lived, I, we lived in hiding. 
Yeah, and him being crazy is good cover just by itself. Yeah, I guess and then, so. And then, and then on top of that, there's this crazy niece. See, it runs in the family. So that's a good cover strategy just by itself. But uh, the question is, okay, well, that's good that you were hiding from him, but it's kind of pathetic if you can successfully hide from the military. Yeah, I know. I know. I think So it just kind of leaves you with, oh, what the heck? Why would they just do that for three days? And then that's the end of it. So the that's only peculiar. Thing, the only thing I can think of is I don't think that they expected the reaction from my family that, you know, came about. And, and right. the fact was that my grandfather was um, employed by a foreign firm and he had access to considerable resources okay. and he was he was pretty hostile and so they, uh, I, they probably just backed off and said this is too much trouble probably that's that's what i would guess because it was okay. you know well that makes sense so um so somebody let's say it wasn't you it was another girl from another family who ended up <laughs> recruited and chronically involved in the program and trained up and and then was used operationally 20 years later. How would that little girl follow a different path from you? And you just explain half of it, which is the people who are describing these kind of experiences frequently, you can't just be missing from a normal family who don't even notice that you're gone, right? right. There's got to be some degree of collusion and involvement by at least the dad. Uh, so it's usually he was a military guy himself. He was an intelligence guy. He was buddies with a bunch of military people. He was kind of a shady guy. Maybe he was involved in organized crime. But there's basically they had something on him. So it's kind of a bribery deal. Right. The, he may have been a pedophile himself. And uh-huh. so therefore they could get access to his daughter he didn't blow the whistle on it. Or he was kind of a, what you were sketching in earlier. He's just a guy who thinks it's a thrill to be involved in this spook stuff, and maybe he's a pedophile and is molesting his daughter, or he just wants to be in with this exciting crowd doing this spy stuff, and he maybe buys the uh, you know the uh, Patriot angle on it. But yeah. one way or another, the dad is knowledgeable about including with and allowing access. And so yeah. then when when the family isn't doing that, then they grab the person but they don't have a secure you know access route because your your stepdad or whatever he would be called isn't reliable himself and he doesn't have reliable access and control over your situation. So therefore they just said, Well, looked like a good Candidate, but looks like it's not going to work out. We'll move on to the next one. Yeah, that's that's yeah. I I think I got lucky, but uh, you know the thing, it did it did in a sense scar me because uh, you know my brain, my memory, my my cognitive powers have always been you know my strong suit, and having having a three day period in my life that I couldn't recall was like a thorn in my brain. For right. years, you know, it was just it just really bothered me. And then all, you know, some of the weird paranormal stuff that happened around that time are seemingly paranormal. I don't know that it was. 
um, you know, it was just kind of weird. And I, you know, I, I wondered, did they do something? Did they put a ticking bomb in my brain? Is it going to go off someday? And if so, what is it? And what, you know, what's it going to do? But, you know, at, at this point, I figured that uh, three days, four days at the max, you know, what could they do? Yeah, that would just be <laughs> round one round one of a very long-term program to have any yeah. kind of ticking time bomb inside your brain. <clears throat> well, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask. You should turn over if, all your lifetime's assets to Dr. Ross right away. <laughs> I don't have any. <laughs> oh, sorry. dang. So much for um, that. Yeah, but, but I do notice that, you know, I did have... Uh, some problems with, uh, uh, you know, kind of feeling isolated as I grew up because I, uh, uh, I, well, I was afraid to form friendships, and I would say that if something like that happened, you know, it would kind of affect that. Oh, um, yeah, but you know, I mean, I've kind of, I think I'm fairly healthy now. But I wanted to ask if a person had DID. Mm-hmm. And say you were a partner with that person, mm-hmm. and the person had been pretty good because I've re- I've read your you know I was reading the Osiris Complex, mm-hmm. and I was re- you know and I noticed that a lot of these people that they're uh, everything kind of blossoms out when they're late twenties and thirties it seems you know they start I mean they're able to cope up till then and then things start blowing up in their lives, right and. So I was wondering if, say, a, a person was in a relationship with somebody, and I'm thinking about somebody in particular and specific, uh, would they? What signs would they look for? Uh, to well, know it all. There's no one, you know, size fits all kind of pattern. So some people have a full multiple personality and seriously abusive childhoods, and they would be switching by this one part coming out and going back in throughout childhood, but then they kind of got out of it. They either went off to school or the perpetrator died or parents got divorced, and life was kind of okay from middle school or high school or college on. And then the system just kind of went into shutdown mode. So there are all these parts inside, but they're kind of in sleep mode inside. So there's no overt switching. There's no amnesia. And you would never know, and the person might never know. And then something happens like uh, they get raped or they get into an abusive marriage or sometimes they have a a daughter and the daughter turns four, which is the age that the abuse started, and then a whole bunch of memories start coming back. So for one reason or another, stress or just for no obvious reason, the lid kind of comes off and start having some flashbacks, some nightmares, and missing time, then you get into therapy, and then the whole thing unfolds. But up until the lid comes off, you could be living with somebody and not really notice much of anything. And not notice anything at all, okay. So, is, so that's one scenario. There... Okay. The opposite end of the spectrum would be somebody who clearly has you know, fully active DID with switching and amnesia. And there's kind of a variety of accounts and degrees of knowledge by loved ones. Sometimes, the, occasionally, not the most commonly, but occasionally, the husband will actually know parts by name. Oh dear. And, you know, 
knows one that he has sex with and knows a little girl that he reads stories with and knows their names and just kind of accepts that's the way it is with my weird wife sort of thing. And then they come into therapy and he goes, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Uh, that's not that common. But more common is the uh, person comes into therapy, maybe they've been in the mental health system for a year or two or three, but finally the diagnosis gets figured out. And then we bring the husband in to discuss it and just go over it. And he goes, that totally makes sense. Now I get it. Because huh. he didn't realize that she had DID. But she would just all of a sudden start acting like another person. She'd either be acting like a scared little child curled up in a ball, or she'd be very seductive, sexually active, or very angry, blowing up over the slightest thing. And they'd have a huge fight. And then the next day, she would claim she doesn't remember. And he'd always think, uh, so that's not remembering. And, it's, and he kind of believed her that she didn't remember and kind of thought maybe she was just using that as a cover story. But the, So the very distinct changes of behavior and, and claiming not to remember what had happened, not remember parts of conversation, that would be like the most common scenario. So what you look for is exactly what you would expect, actually, that there's, quotes other people inside. They take turns being in control of the body. And so the behavior changes dramatically. And then they claim not to remember. And so when it's more, the more disguised it is, the more it looks like this person's just kind of moody. Or when they get drunk, all of a sudden it's like somebody else is there. Oh, boy. So just is not feeling is? like there's somebody else there. Yeah, like a busload with nobody driving. <laughs> right. Is there any crossover uh, between DID and, say, borderline personality disorder? Actually, I've published a couple of papers on that and have a paper under review at a journal about that. That's also, I think, interesting problem. So, first of all, what is borderline personality disorder? And uh, it's a somewhat controversial diagnosis, and, and it's kind of got very bad press. So people who are, have borderline personality disorder are called borderlines. And, uh-huh. you know, I was taught that borderlines are gigantically manipulative, pain in the neck. Uh, kind of hysterical females, and you got to try and settle them down and manage them, not get too tangled up with them, and don't let them stay in the hospital too long. And they're always trying to, you know, yank your chain and threatening suicide, but they're not really genuinely suicidal, they're just manipulative. And it was a very ugly, demeaning picture. And there was no discussion of any child abuse whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But in the literature on borderline personality disorder, they regularly have very traumatic, lousy childhoods. Not quite as severe as DID, but pushing up towards it. And borderline personality is basically a checklist of symptoms that you have to have you know, quite a lot of the time for many years, not just for a month or two sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's angry uh, outbursts, angry episodes, um chronic feelings of boredom and emptiness, really severe chronic feelings of boredom and emptiness, um, physically self-damaging acts like self-mutilation and, and doing things to harm your body, cutting, burning, etc. Uh, what's called idealization devaluation, which is 
it's just abrupt changes from totally white to totally black. So the mood could be perfectly fine, and then it's like a switch flicks, and all of a sudden, instead of you're the greatest psychiatrist in the world, you know, the, you're the arch psychiatrist from hell sort of thing, simply because you wouldn't write a prescription or didn't agree with something or weren't being perfectly attentive. So the whole uh, perception, the thinking, how they interact with you, the mood state, their level of arousal just switches night and day. And so those abrupt, complete changes of state, which is already starting to sound a little DID-ish. Then there's the instability of mood, huge sudden shifts in mood back and forth and up and down. Identity disturbance, which is fragmentation of identity. Um, general impulsivity that isn't necessarily directly like cutting, burning on yourself. And uh, intolerance of being alone, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So first of all, the symptoms overlap a little bit. Yeah. But in people with uh, multiple personality disorder, uh, it varies from series to series, but in large series of cases, it it bounces around in the general range of about 50 to 60% of people with DID also meet criteria for borderline personality disorder. Wow. And if, if the main diagnosis is borderline personality disorder, again, it varies a bit from series to series, but a substantial number, like 20 30%, will meet criteria for DID or a partial form of DID. So basically, I just think they're variations on the same theme. <laughs> Not really do, distinct things. Do they ever um, take their violence, you know, like outside? Um, in other words, instead of like cutting on themselves, do they ever become violent against other people? Um, yeah, they do. And um, in the, you know the Jody Arias trial, just mm-hmm. about yeah. to conclude. She's found guilty oh, yeah. of her horrendously violent oh, murder yeah. of her boyfriend. No matter what he was doing to her, that was like as violent as it gets how she murdered him. And there's no doubt that she did, in fact, murder him. So the defense was trying to argue that she had post-traumatic stress and uh, had been abused by him. And then the the prosecution was going, then the prosecution's expert was going, oh, no, she's just, quote, just borderline. And meaning meaning that she was a lying manipulator, basically, and didn't have legitimate abuse, didn't have legitimate trauma, so we couldn't feel sorry for her and you know, couldn't use the abuse excuse. But, so I don't know if she does or doesn't meet criteria for borderline personality disorder. But Did you watch um, it, interviews with her? Uh, a little bit. I didn't follow it, like, really closely, but I followed it a bit. But so the point I mean, being that people with borderline personality disorder more commonly turn the violence on themselves, but definitely can turn it outward. You had a, I had a couple other observations and comments about her, if you want. Yes, please. Uh, one is there was, and again, I didn't follow this closely or look into it in great detail. But if it, you want, I can give you a rundown of of the case. No. No. Go ahead, talk about it. It sounded like she was describing some, uh, well, definitely, she was describing amnesia, but she told so many different stories, trying to figure out which one's the true story, which one's a lie, which one's a mix-up. 
but she was claiming to, first of all, she said she never did a dinner with self-defense, and it was this, and it was that, but she claimed that she remembered, I think, shooting him but not stabbing him. Is that right? I think so, she didn't, yeah. She she claimed she didn't remember some part of it anyway. And so, you let me give you a, a rundown, though, of the case okay, of what basically happened. Okay, so <clears throat> the story that, that, that I saw basically went like this. She had an on-and-off relationship with this Alexander guy, who was a right. Mormon. And uh, the day of the murder, they had uh, taken pictures of themselves having sex. And then she had taken some pictures of him in the shower posing playfully. So it was totally playfully. And then the next pictures on the camera from the same day were of his body on the ground and her dragging it away because she had knocked the camera over and it had taken a picture. So there's like a picture of her dragging his bloody body the same day that all of this was happening. And when you watch oh. interviews with her, each one of her interviews, she starts off with, no, totally it didn't happen, totally it didn't happen. And then she has this really kind of like, I'm totally innocent, no, demure kind of behavior. And then in the next interview, oh. she's like, no, 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 no. No jury will ever convict me. She's very confident. Her body language changes. Her voice changes. I mean, she she really kind of had the, she gave the impression of not being someone who is intellectually stable, uh, mentally stable, you know? Right. And so she went to the Well, we know she's not mentally stable, no matter how oh, yeah, you look I mean, at it. She, she stabbed him 26 times and shot him once, I think, in the head. Right. So, I mean, it was it was extremely violent. And this is the same day that they were basically having sex and, you know, taking sure. pictures of it. So it, was, it wasn't like this whole situation, and, and, and neither of them seemed to be particularly uh, unhappy about the situation. It was obvious that she was taking the pictures of him in the shower while he's posing playfully, so... You kind right. of imagine the situation is like what was really going on there. So that's basically the the backstory. Right. So first, just to give you a quickie on my view of uh, insanity defense and so on. Um, I, I do personally, and this is my personal take on it. I personally d- disagree with the whole concept of the insanity defense. I don't think it makes conceptual sense. I think that you're guilty if you did the crime and you're not guilty if you didn't do the crime and your mental state doesn't have anything to do with whether you did or didn't do it. So I don't think the concept of not guilty by reason of insanity makes any sense. Um, And I think that it should be abolished because it just brings psychiatry and the law into disrepute. But what could happen is uh, that there's basically two phases. You have a guilt phase, so if you're not guilty of the crime, that's the end of the story. If you're found guilty, at that point, mental health testimony could be introduced solely for the purpose of sentencing. Very, we're sentencing, not length of sentence, though. Right. Maybe, maybe length of sentence, but mostly what kind of mental health services are you going to need and where should you serve your time. I think that's extremely so, rational. And so that's, therefore, I don't think multiple personalities should be grounds for the insanity defense because I don't no. believe in the insanity defense. But even if there is an insanity defense, I don't think multiple personality disorder should qualify. And there's a, a really good movie with um, Kevin Costner is the uh, Mr. Brooks. He's a serial killer with multiple personalities. And uh, uh, what's his name? William Hurt is his alter personality. And it illustrates very nicely what I think is commonly the case in uh, criminals who have DID, which is the innocent guy up front who isn't the criminal 
actually knows what's going on, either to a little degree or a big degree. So it's not that I'm innocent because the horrible other person inside did it. The guy who's the Mr. Innocent out front commonly either has a pretty big inkling or knows exactly what's been going on. So he's really, legally, he's like the getaway driver in the car outside the bank. He's totally implicated. He's an accomplice, and he could have walked into the police station at any time and turned the bad guy in, but chose not to and colluded in the cover-up. So even if you have an insanity defense, I think most of the time the ID doesn't doesn't really qualify. And you're not insane in the sense that you don't know right from wrong and have no idea that it's wrong to rob a Mm -hmm. bank or shoot your boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So I'm only interested from the perspective of, is there anything we can learn about this that can be useful you know, with other people elsewhere in life down the road. Just mm-hmm. understanding the origins of crime. Because if she does have DID, which I'd say is a distinct possibility, um, how did she get it? What was her childhood like? And we have to, start, instead of um, you know, just slamming her in the media and saying she's not going to get away with anything and she's horrible, what about how all these criminals are being created, what are the conditions in society, and what, if anything, can we do to prevent more of Jody Harris's coming down the pipe? That's my take on it. What what about criminals who are not necessarily created but are born that way, you know, psychopaths, for example? I'm a pretty big skeptic on people who are just born that way. Yeah? I mean, there's, I know that's, again, touted in the profession, and there's lots of professionals who look at it that way. But the evidence doesn't really support it. Well, what about about all the work that Robert Hare's done, and and what about Bob Altemeyer and Martha Martha Stout? Stout. There's people who fit the profile of psychopaths, no question about that. But how many of them came from healthy, normal, happy families? yeah. It's not that it's impossible. I, I, in general, I think I know of you. A, <laughs> I think yeah. I know of you. I swear to God. I'm sure there's a few, but not the majority. I wouldn't think. Mm. Well, so in, gen- yeah. in general, in the mental health field, there's kind of examples of everything. There's people who have the disorder who have trauma. People who have the disorder who don't have trauma. So it's really all a question of, you know, what percentage of the group is trauma really the big factor and what percentage of the group is that are the genetics the big factor and there's going to be some people where it's almost all trauma and there's going to be some people where it's almost all genetics it's not like everybody fits one pattern true mm. uh, maybe uh, a way to uh, make those two topics converge psychopathy and uh, mind control i wanted yeah. to to quote uh, part of your book actually about dr delgado it gives a glimpse of the the psyche or some of those doctors, because yeah. one central question during this, the reading your book, it was, what is the deep motivation of some of the key players? How did they manage to go to so much cruelty, torture? And uh, I was thinking that fame, money, and uh, helping the country couldn't uh, explain uh, totally such behavior. So Dr. Delgado wrote a book entitled Physical Control of the Mind toward mm-hmm. a psycho-civilized society. And you're right. In it, he described his vision of evolution. Delgado believed that control of the human brain through remote stimulation of implanted electrodes 
offered man another step up the evolutionary ladder. With this technology, man could directly control his own mind, mood, and behavior. And I was wondering if one of the main, two main motivations of those central players, doctors, was not control over human beings and this kind of delight in the suffering of others that uh, is documented uh, among psychopaths. Welcome to Auschwitz. Oh, I mean uh, Yale University. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so uh, yeah, Delgado wasn't kidding. In his book, I mean, he very explicitly, straight up, as you just were pointing out, his idea is that we're going to implant electrodes in everybody, but of course not Delgado not him. and a couple yeah. of his friends, uh, including up to the rank of general in the military. And we're going to control everybody's thinking, behavior, attitudes. I mean, it's a totalitarian total control. And so that's just fascism in the hands of a scientist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the ultimate in fascist control of the state. All disguised as you know, for the benefit of humanity and evolution and blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know for sure that Delgado's not going to have electrode in his head. People like mobile ideas like that need to be pushed off a cliff. Well, but that that kind of highlights what I'm talking about. Somebody, you know, somebody like Delgado, somebody like some of these psychiatrists or psychologists, physicians, politicians, so forth. You know, people who are not uh, raving Hannibal Lecter types, certainly, but they they have no conscience and they do incredible damage to the planet because of their lack of conscience, but they're still not, you know, blubbering, uh, spittle-spewing uh, madmen. But well, they, neither was Hannibal Lecter. Well, I don't know. Most of the he, time. Most of the time. Yeah, well, when he, yeah, most of the time. Yeah, well, what about, like, Joseph Mengele, you know, people like that? I mean, that's like a kind of extreme example of a scientist doing very, very, you know, evil things. Um, I mean, because he's kind of like Delgado got the funding, you know. No, I was just exactly. giving him as an example of of somebody who's really kind of kind of doing quite bad things, you know. But beyond quite bad, I mean, that's up at the maximum of the human race. Right. You know. I mean, so at a certain point, you have to wonder if maybe there is something fundamentally different about them beyond just oh, was he, you know, was he diddled a little too much as a child type of thing. He, uh, you know, I'm just saying that as the backing up the idea that maybe there is something fundamentally wrong with a person like that that is beyond just simply that they, you know, had a difficult childhood. That's I was just putting right. that evidence there to back it up. There yeah, are, because yeah. You, I agree totally. You can find a million people with equally difficult childhoods who never became like that. So, mm-hmm. so I wanted I wanted to ask I wanted to ask a particular question. Um, because you said uh, that you don't think that insanity is a defense, and I mean, I just think it conceptually doesn't make sense as a concept. Conceptually, it doesn't make sense as a concept, and I, and I do understand that, and I, and I do actually, to a certain degree, uh, agree with it. But I do kind of begin to ask the question of if um, if trauma creates a person of an unstable mentality, right, mm-hmm. and then they then in turn traumatize other people through murder, through whatever. Um, mm-hmm. How do we, you know, ethically but also um, morally and with conscience draw a line between a victim and and the abuser 
when it's like it's like a repeating pattern it's a chain in a certain sense so i mean how can you with like if you have a conscience you look at a person and you say yeah that person may have like you know shot up an entire room of people and you're like oh that's this really horrible obviously we have to do something and no insanity should not be a way for you to get out of the crime because yeah. obviously if you're killing people the reason that we have laws and that we go to a court and we put people in jail is for the safety of society so insanity right. isn't a defense but from a perspective of conscience, you look at a person, and even though they hurt people, did they do it because there was something intrinsically evil about them or because they were a victim themselves and that a fracture in their in their psyche caused the problem? And I, you know, I think, that's kind of my question. I think what, what Colin said before is that basically if a person committed a crime and they had DID or whatever, uh, they're guilty. But you don't necessarily just say they're guilty and treat them like a person who is a normal, rational person and put them in jail for the rest of their life or execute them. You look at, you at least make some effort to try and find out why why they did it and develop the whole process of trying to treat it, you know, uh, maybe specifically with that person and with other people in society. Or is that what you said, Colin? I think that's Yeah, what they call a pre-sentence <laughs> investigation. Well, let me, let me do the step on the other side of the debate for a second. And so this is very complicated and there's all kinds of people who have legitimate different points of view and so on. But when would the insanity defense actually kind of make sense? So here's just a made-up scenario. It's not based on anything at all. So the guy comes into the uh, small convenience store. He's got an AK-47. He points it at the store owner and demands two chocolate bars. So the store owner gives him the two chocolate bars. He eats one, and then he points to AK-47 at the store owner and demands that they, he call the police because the so-and-so has been persecuting him and following him, and the police need to know about it. So the store owner calls the police. The police arrive. In the meantime, the guy's put his AK-47 down, and he's very happy to see the police arrive because he wants to tell them about the conspiracy against him. Well, so then that guy's obviously insane. And why would we want to legally treat that guy exactly the same as just your average criminal bank robber? And that's the rationale behind the insanity defense. And that makes sense. But the problem is mental health professionals can't really... So part of the problem is you come in as a mental health professional and it's like six months, nine months, a year and a half later, and you've got to try and figure out what was the person's mental state in this little window of time, in this day way back when. And we just don't have a consistent, reliable, valid, scientific way of doing that very well. So that's a problem. And then the next problem is, as we see a trial after trial after trial, there's these experts with totally opposite opinions on opposite sides of the case all the time. So which expert is right and which expert is wrong? And I think it's just all so fuzzy that it just becomes a mess. I think so it's, I not, think part of it's, not, it's not really kind of like the theory of it. It's more just the practical reality of it. It's such a big mess. The, the problem, I think, is partly the diagnostic criteria and, you know, how to categorize because it's, it's like nothing is necessarily exactly categorical. It can also be, you know, right. on, a conti- on a continuum. And Which is true of mental disorders. Yeah, there I are, mean, it's... Yeah. And, and there's all those problems, but this is why I think what you just said a few minutes ago was kind of brilliant. You know, just just leave it at this, that, you know, you did it, you're guilty, and that's that. But then 
the sentencing phase should be strongly influenced by you know the the actual factors as to where when how and why you got the way that you did it either you're a you know a, a rational criminal evil person or you had mitigating factors that's you know i think that's really kind of you have two absolute distinct phases in the process you know guilt or innocence you know and the, and as you said you're innocent you know forget about it but if you're guilty then consider all of the factors there and that's i think that's kind of brilliant because then then you then you kind of get away from this whole uh innocent by reason of insanity i mean how can anybody say that somebody's innocent when they did the crime you know what i'm saying right that is just you know highly heated arguments on both sides on whatever talk show or media show and just goes on and on and on and on forever and it's never resolved in every single case you have to bring up the whole concept again and rehash it well, your guy with the AK-47 that ate the chocolate bar, what if he then, instead of putting his AK-47 down, he shot the store owner and then waited for the police to arrive? Well, then he would obviously have to be, I mean, he hasn't really done much except steal a candy bar, which is, you know, like a petty offense. But if he murdered the guy, then clearly he's guilty of of a, of a capital crime, even if he's crazy as a loon and needs to be locked up in a hospital. And the other issue there is, like Jody Arias, the same would apply. She's mm-hmm. obviously way too dangerous to let out. And, and the idea, and the idea that, I mean, in theory, say she did have multiple personality, and say she had skilled multiple personality therapy in prison, which is never going to happen, and mm-hmm. she got treated to stable integration. She totally remembered everything. She took complete responsibility for everything. In theory, maybe she could become non-dangerous, but that's a huge in theory because that'll never happen because she'll never get that kind of therapy in prison anyway. But most, like, more insane-style people who are like the guy at the convenience store with the AK-47, the medications are not all that effective a lot of the time. And the idea that this guy's going to agree to and pleasantly take his medications post-discharge and be safe. Not very likely. Just, yeah, the odds are of, of reoffending are too high to let the person out. So it's really not about letting the person out anyway. Yeah, what about Carla Faye Tucker? Uh, Carla Tucker, she's the one who was in the movie Monster, right? No, I don't know if there was so a movie. Who were we talking about? Yeah. Which person it, is that? Carla Faye Tucker was the one that was involved in the axe murder. She was on on drugs when she did it. She was under, you know, had been with this rough crowd, and and uh, she was convicted and sentenced to death. And uh, she uh, converted to Christianity, became a good person, realized the error of her ways, you know, blah blah blah. Uh, I think she was sincere. I watched an interview with her, and I think that she was sincerely um, horrified by what she had been led into doing by the associations that she'd been keeping and the kinds of thoughts that she'd been thinking because of those associations and because of her background. And, you know, I I, I really, you know, she said, you know, as far as she was concerned, staying in prison the rest of her life wasn't, um, you know, wasn't unfair because she did the crime and she, you know, felt that... uh, Serving the time for it was was fair, but she didn't think that being executed 
was the answer because she was at that point in time had been uh you know doing a lot of work in the prison system helping other people and and there was a global out, outcry i think against her execution even the pope uh appealed on her behalf and george bush is the one who uh had her executed and mimicked her on a uh, on a TV show afterwards, when he was interviewed about it, where he said, "Oh, she was begging, please, 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 don't kill me," you know, and and he he laughed about it. Great. Well, um, well, I personally don't believe in the death penalty either, but um, and one reason I don't believe in it is because of the mistakes that get made. I mean, right. A and they get made. There's a number of people on death row who've been exonerated based on DNA DNA evidence. Right, but I it's I just don't believe it in it. Period. So, if we got rid of the death penalty, or if we we're in a non-death penalty state, then that just takes that whole part of the you know the ranting and raving off the table. And uh, so there's mitigating circumstances, but the that has to be balanced against. Okay, but so you had a horrible childhood, but you're an adult, and you're responsible for your choices as an adult. And having this kind of childhood doesn't give you a license to do all the following. Right. We we follow that in therapy all the time, and we right. say that out loud to people. And we have you know behavioral consequences for people doing outrageous things while they're in therapy. And then so, we have several cases. So, sorry, Colin, I wanted to mention the cases right. that you listed in your in your book, uh, CIA doctors, where you have the actual murderer who was not sentenced and actually uh, was found guilty, the programmer, like the case of uh, Patty Hearst. Or right. There are two or three cases like that where it was established by the court that the murderer was definitely programmed and had no responsibility whatsoever on what he did or what she did. Yeah, there was a... Uh, I'm not sure exactly the correct pronunciation of his name, but I think it's Pally Hardrup. Very interesting case yeah. in uh, early 50s in Denmark, where he was in prison and his cellmate conditioned and programmed him, and had this character X that he created that was under the hypnotic control of the guy who was still in jail at the time that Pally Hardrup robbed the bank, and it was very extensively reviewed. Uh, you know, it was a very very thorough kind of case, jury case, and. Pally Hardrup, who actually robbed the bank, was found innocent, and his cellmate, who was still in jail at the time of the robbery, was found guilty. Bjorn Nelson. Yeah. And, but first of all, these are very, very unusual cases that, you know, aren't the foundation of general principles of law, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But in a case like that, that would be a serious mitigating circumstance issue. But yeah. still, with the guy was Pally Hardrick really totally helpless? Did he not have any inkling at all? Could he have not gone to the police? Mm. But isn't isn't that the question in terms of this whole CIA mind programming and the extent to which they're able to do this? I mean, Patty Hearst kind of springs to mind as well, you know. Um, right. Um, she she did two years, I think, and then she was released. Um, yeah, those uh, Jimmy Carter. Pardoned her. So the Patty Hearst story is interesting, though, and it's in my book as well. Um, there's a whole bunch of different kind of wrinkles and aspects to that case. So she's a member of the Hearst family, so incredibly wealthy. Um, she's an undergrad at Berkeley, 
why on earth would she need or want to rob a bank? Her, mm-hmm. well, she had no priors, right? So she had and no, no no priors. She's at her apartment with her boyfriend Stephen Weed, and um, the SLA, Symbionese Liberation Army, breaks in at gunpoint, uh, knocks uh, her boyfriend out with the butt of a rifle, throws her in the trunk of a car, and uh, rides away with her. So then she's held in captivity for over 40 days. Most of the time she's in a closet. She's raped by SLA members. Uh, There's mock FBI raids that they conduct where she thinks that she's going to get killed at any second. So it's it's a Guantanamo Bay enhanced interrogation program. And then she uh, has a new identity named Tanya who participates in several bank robberies. And uh, the amusing twist on the whole story is that her expert witnesses included Jolly West, Martin Orne, who are both MK Ultra mind control contractors cleared at top secret on the mentoring candidate programs. Mm-hmm. Oh boy! Who te- who testified that she was basically a mind control, person, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but she was found guilty. But then she was pardoned later. Mm-hmm. And so, who was the Symbionese Liberation Army? Well, so yeah. Donald DeFries was the main guy, and so the there was about eight or nine of them, and. Uh, there's all kinds of wrinkles on the background story, but basically, um, Donald DeFries, whose code name was SinQ, was a low-level, kind of not very well-educated, petty street criminal guy before Patty Hearst was captured, and uh, he died in a shootout. But in her biography, Patty Hearst describes um, that Donald DeFries, SinQ, constantly was talking about Colston Westbrook being mm-hmm. a government agent. And who is Colston Westbrook? Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I have his um, master's thesis from Berkeley. He was a psychological warfare expert for the Army during the Korean War. He came into Vacaville State Prison under cover of the Black Cultural Association. And while there, worked with Donald DeFries designed the seven-headed cobra logo of the Symbionese Liberation Army and gave Donald DeFries his code name of Sincu. And Donald DeFries was at Vacaville Street Prison at the same time as drug research was being done there by the CIA under MK Search, mm-hmm. which is, uh, is admitted to in a letter from a high-ranking CIA official to Leo Ryan, the congressman who was killed at Jonestown. Exactly. It's a highly, highly convoluted story. Yeah. But so what, uh, one of the survivors can't... of the... Well, let me add a couple more details. One of the survivors of the massacre at Jonestown said that she saw Stephen Weed on the premises at the uh, temples, uh, the People's Temple in Ukiah, California, w- walking around with Jim Jones three months before the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Mm-hmm. So in Jim, other Jones, words, Jim Jones was a... Uh, a, a, a I'm CIA fairly convinced, asset. Yeah, CIA asset. 
And Joe's so the, was actually a mind control program in and of itself. Yeah, so so the CIA created the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, mind programmed this guy who then kidnapped Patty Hearst, mind programmed her uh, with the techniques that he, he learned or whatever, mm-hmm. and then she committed a bank robbery for which she was convicted, and basically it was just like one step away or two steps away at most from being a CIA program. Is that what we're what we're saying here? Yeah, exactly. So That's just, we can talk about what should Patty Hearst have you know, been found guilty of and what should her sentence have been. But how about all the other players getting off scot-free? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that this is it's it's just. Did you ever see um, a video series uh, called Evidence of Revision? Uh, I don't think so. No. Well, Evidence of Revision is uh, the actual archival video footage that covers a whole lot of uh, you know different things that have happened in the U.S. history, including the assassination of John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Um, the Jonestown Massacre, et cetera, and, you know, basically shows how, you know, what was being reported at the time. I mean, it's the actual footage from the television reports and from interviews with different witnesses and so forth. And one part of it has um, an – it's it's only an audio because it was taken from a tape, so there's there's no video part to this. But it's the interrogation of a girl named Sandy Serrano, who apparently was present at the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and mm-hmm. and listening to this interrogation by this uh, CIA guy who was working with the, the Los Angeles police is probably one of the most disturbing things I have ever heard in my entire life. I'll send you a copy yeah, of, sure. this, of these videos so you can listen to this interrogation because it's just... It's, yeah. Sandy Serrano was the the girl who the eyewitness who said that she saw a girl in a polka dot dress coming down. Oh, she was the polka dot dress observer. Yeah, yeah this was yeah this was the witness, and and she was she was mind programmed on the spot over a series of hours by this guy. You can hear it happening. In the, yeah, in the police station. The guy claimed was, he just turned her around. She started out saying, "No, I saw her," and that's what she said. She said, "We got him." The girl in the polka dot dot dress said, "We got him," and she someone asked who, and she said, "We got we got Bobby Kennedy." And this was right. her statement. And after about three hours of this guy in the six police station, six hours, I think. Six hours of this guy in the police station, she basically said that she had made it up and that she didn't see that. And yeah. these guys were presenting themselves as FBI. Yeah. But it was right. it's the most amazing thing you'll ever well, not you, but the average person. If they if they listen to this, it's the most amazing thing you'll ever hear. But I mean I will, I'll send you a copy of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah sure on to the present day says that he has amnesia for the shooting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Colin, I have a question about the shooting. Um, in your book, you, in the CIA doctor's book, you mentioned that for the sake of the book, let's assume that uh, Siren Siren was a self-programmed uh, Manchurian candidate. Right. right. Is it because you didn't want to dwell in the conspiracy theories around the RFK assassination, or, the, or is it your, your take on it? Do you think uh, it was... Um, Kind of both. A good question. So for that book, I was kind of toying with putting this in and putting that in and putting this in and putting that in. And then I just decided while I was writing the book, no, I'm going to stay 100% with documented facts for this book because I don't want there to be any kind of opening for attack. Yeah, that really and comes so, Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's point number one. And then point number two was 
on Sirhan Sirhan, there just isn't locked down total proof evidence yeah. of who the you're handled by. And so, no, well, they'd be incompetent if there's that much evidence all over the place. And so I just thought, well, for the purpose of this book, I'll just use him and also same with Mark David Chapman who shot John Lennon to illustrate yeah. how a self-created venture in Canada would look. Yeah. And so, so for the purpose of the book and the purpose of illustration, it works out either way. But I've my mind is wide open to both of them being handled. So you're saying you're saying that in, in terms of self created, you mean that he's basically had some mental disorder like DID or Well uh Saran Saran did I mean uh, Mark David Chapman did um uh, a lot of self meditation, mm. uh, a lot ah. of kind of proportion type stuff and Sirhan mm-hmm. Sirhan got a bunch of Rosicrucian study manuals and, you know, was involved in some mm. self-hypnosis type stuff and some training. And well, I personally would think he was handled, but I can't prove it. There's pretty strong evidence that he that was he extremely was. Su- su- uh, suggestible. Yeah, I right. think you'll be really interested in some of the uh, interviews and footage, archival footage uh, that we've got on this DVD set, and I will send you. I want you to give us the names of your books that are kind of designed for the popular culture uh, so that we can, you know, our readers can be aware of their titles because we've got a stack of them here. We've got this one here, huh. the, CIA, the CIA Doctors. Which one you got there? You've got... Uh, the Great Psychiatry Scam, we've got The Rape of Eve, we've got The Osiris Syndrome. Uh, I don't think we bought the, the textbook. It was pretty pricey, but we got everything yeah. else. Right. So, well, the, the textbook is a textbook, and so it's, it's for right. professionals. And I'm, I wish the uh, publisher would bring out a soft cover version, but they insist on just a hardcover. So in terms of all this mind control stuff, it's the CIA doctors, which is you know, quite readable for anybody. Um, you don't need any kind of special education or anything. Um, in terms of criticizing the way psychiatry operates and the pseudoscience in psychiatry, it's the great psychiatry scam, which is satirical and I think kind of funny. Well, um, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed your little autobiographical sketches. It was uh, it was I, terrific. I, I hope everybody will read at least that book because it's it's a terrific book. And uh, okay. I, and I I enjoyed that very much. There's um, uh, there's another thing that uh, the that rape you of got Eve is, is yes. a, also a very readable book. It's about <laughs> amazing, very well documented uh, exploitation of Chris Sizemore, who's the three faces of Eve real person uh-huh. uh, by by her psychiatrist. Yeah, that was I was pretty disappointed because I really loved Harry Cleckley. I have a question about that because uh, while reading the book, I was wondering what was the real role of uh, Cleckley because The Mask of Sanity is a a, a reference like, to the book. Uh, I like uh, The Mask of Sanity. I think it's a very well written book. Uh, yeah, we and, do too. And, but the, then uh, I think Cleckley was more. He, sorry, I'd say he's more the background guy, and. Uh, the main controller operator running the show Thigpen. was Thigpen, but also I'm sure Clerkley knew what was going on. And uh, like in terms of the level of exploitation, for the book which came out in 1957, The Three Faces of Eve, which sold mm-hmm. uh, over 2 million copies, Chris Sizemore got $3. Jeez. $1 
for each of her alter personalities. All the rest of the money went to those two psychiatrists. You don't have a peacock, I, do you? <laughs> a peacock? Yeah, I just heard a, a strange sound. <laughs> I think that's my phone. Like, yeah. oh. I, I think I got a text or an email or something. Oh, yeah. it, it sounded like our peacock. <laughs> the, oh. the, thought, the thought that occurred to me while reading the rape of Eve is uh, obviously Kekle had to know at least partly what was going on and uh, he had to know about uh, six pen manipulation. So, And I started to think if Kekle managed to make such an accurate description of psychopathy, uh, as early as the 30s, and at the same time he was at least partially involved in the Chris Sizemore case, maybe he will manage to describe the psychopathy so accurate, uh, accurately because uh, it was part of his inner landscape. So is it a paranoid thought? No, I don't think it was part no, of No, 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 I don't think that's... Okay. Well, for, I think that could be partly true, but you have to remember the image of the psychopath that we have today is kind of the clever criminal who gets away with stuff and commits mm-hmm. crimes. And then, so then we got the white collar criminal who's like the really good psychopath. Um, but when you look at the stories in that book, it, it's actually a whole different spin on psychopath from what we normally yeah. think. It's yeah, there are people that are hospitalized. Yeah, there's kind of guys, it's basically pathetic, stumbling, stumbling, bumbling losers who are manipulating and defeating themselves as much as they are in the outside world. So it's not the clever con on sort of picture at all. And so he just, I don't he think describes them as nine year old boys, you know? Exactly. So then he wouldn't fit that profile. No. All right. So there but maybe Again? you could say like if you wanted to be a psychiatrist writing, you know, a uh, psychological dissection of Pigpen, <laughs> you could say uh, correctly rather, you could say he presented that portrait to prove that he isn't one of them. Um, Colin, we have a call. Go ahead, ahead, sir. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say we have a call here. Um, I was going to take it and see if uh, a caller has an interesting question for you. Okay. Uh, Hello? Hi, Hi, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Bahar from the Netherlands. Um, Hi, Bahar. I'm sorry. Hi. I'm sorry Uh, for interrupting you guys. But, um, no problem. No problem. I would like to ask something, probably something about uh, totally something else. Uh, it's about um, the music industry. There are quite some people on the internet speculating that um, so-called monarch programming is being practiced on artists in the music industry and specifically on some of those who are the most popular. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering whether you or anybody else have read anything on monarch programming being practiced in the music industry, and if not, would you think this could be a possibility? Uh, well, I'm aware of all that. So monarch is a not yet declassified mind control program, okay. uh, which is supposedly operational up to the recent present or currently. So I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with. CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, three branches of the military on Monarch, and just got back, we don't have anything on it. So mm. I'm sure there are ongoing mind control programs. Whether one of them is actually called Monarch, or that's kind of disinformation, misinformation, I don't know. But it doesn't really matter, because even if it's not called Monarch, I'm sure there's some such program operational. As to whether there's handled, controlled people in 
basically all walks of life, but in the music industry? Yeah. I would I would say possible, but I don't know. But I'll tell you two interesting YouTube videos. Okay. If you just go to Britney Spears' Alter Ego. Yes, I've, I've watched that. So there's an interview with uh, Diane, Diane Sawyer, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you look at there, it looks to me, you know, some other skeptics will say, well, he's just over-interpreting everything. But it looks to me like there's a clear switch of personality states, and yeah. she tries to cover it. So, and Kevin Federline, uh, apparently, and friends of hers have been quoted as saying they think she has multiple personalities. Yeah. And And... When she was at UCLA, where, of course, she got a diagnosis of bipolar, um, I saw a news footage of, um, so this was probably like three to four years ago, when she was in, like, really bad shape and was, uh, there's custody speeds about her kids and everything. The paparazzi would say, whenever she came out wearing the pink wig, then we knew we were in for a show. <laughs> the quarter just saying that. And you see a clip of her sticking her head out the car window with the pink wig on, talking mm-hmm. in a British accent, yes. mm-hmm. denying that she's ever heard of her third boyfriend. And then you yeah. see another clip of her, doesn't have the pink wig on, doesn't have a British accent. <clears throat> she's like, I- I've been dating him for so many months, and on she goes. Yeah, and I wonder... Another what... one to look at, I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a little different. This is Lady Gaga. Yeah. So you go... Lady Gaga, alter ego or alter personality. And there's this guy, I think it's Joe Fortuna, some such name. Mm-hmm. So it's either very, very good acting and it's just another stage performance, or it's absolutely this alter personality with this Italian name and this kind of Brooklyn accent. So with her, I can't tell if it's just a pure you know, performance or she actually has DID too. Yeah. And there are many others who hear to talk about hearing voices or hearing mm-hmm. random numbers. So it's right. just really mm. odd. So and I wonder <laughs> yeah. And I wonder how that impacts the younger population, you know, when they're so yeah. yeah. The question so, there would be if, if they are if those artists are basically mentally ill in that way or have a disorder, a mental disorder as a result of modern society and the whole industry that they grew up in or yeah. whether they are mind-controlled um, puppets to, type of thing to spread to a... To purvey a or vector certain attitudes kind of and, and crass ideas yeah. and there is degradation a, of society, etc. So we have right. a question, but we don't have the answer. <laughs> yeah. Is that all right, Bahar? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, right. Thanks for calling. Thanks calling. for your question. Thank you. Bye. Bye. There, there is a, a series of articles by Patrick McGowan titled uh, Dave McGowan, Dave McGowan, titled uh, Laurel Canyon, that documents quite extensively the connection between uh, uh, music movements in uh, in the U.S. in particular in, in the, the sixties and seventies, and the connection with the uh, CIA and government mm. agencies. And obviously, music movement is not such a a free endeavor. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, Colin, have you, have you heard of the Greenbaum speech? I was at the Greenbaum speech. <laughs> when it was given. It's true? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was, oh I forget the exact year now. It was like late 80s. I think it was 1992. Oh, I have it 92, here. 92, yeah. Yeah, 92, 92. yeah. 
So it was like so a year a, after you. Go ahead. Yeah, a year after I moved to Texas, yeah. So yeah. there was a conference called the Eastern Regional Conference on Multiple Personality and Dissociation, and it ran every year from the 80s into the 90s. And it was a like, really good conference. lots of good talks and so on. And um, so there's one talk um, which is going to be just a general hypnosis training talk, you know, how to use hypnosis in the treatment of dissociative disorders. And it seemed like it would probably be approved by the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis and it would just be kind of a regular mainstream training talk. And Corey Hammond, who's a PhD top expert in hypnosis, was the speaker. So I just thought, you know, there's always different talks to choose from. And I thought, yeah, I'll probably go in and listen to this one. So we're all sitting in there, and then lo and behold, the talk has nothing to do with the title or the description in the program. And he, he, Corey Hammond, is describing these patients he's working with who are victims of CIA mind control programming, and they have uh, several different levels of programming, alpha, beta, delta, gamma. He describes the characteristics of these different types of programming and different cases and so on. And he says that the uh, lead programmer is Dr. Green, which is obviously a code name. And then, so then in that era, we heard from patients about Dr. Green, Dr. White, Dr. Black, sometimes Dr. Red. So these are just different mind control doctors. And the idea is that Dr. Green was actually Dr. Green Baum, who was a psychologist or psychiatrist in the death camps who was doing experiments on uh, the prisoners in the death camps. And then he was recruited and brought over to the United States after World War II and was known as Dr. Green and was the lead guy in the MKUltra Bluebird Artichoke Manchurian Candidate programs. So that sounds extremely fantastic until we find out that actually, in fact, there were mind control programs and they did, in fact, create uh, Manchurian candidates and it's well described in the documents and so on. And then also we find out that there really was a project paperclip and some related projects where uh, Nazi war criminals such as Werner von Braun and the rocket program people were brought over uh, to the United States secretly because they couldn't get State Department visas because they were classified as war criminals. And so we know that uh, MDs, rocket experts, propulsion experts, ball bearing experts, film experts, of all kinds, who were Nazi war criminals who were brought over to the U.S. and inserted into military and the private sector. And that includes a physician named Hubertus Strukold, who um, the people he reported to and people he reported who reported to him were tried and convicted at Nuremberg. He was briefly questioned, uh, but never even questioned at length by the U.S. interrogators was brought over through Project Paperclip and is regarded as the father of aviation medicine and has a library named after him at one of the uh, San Antonio Air Force bases. And his experiments included things like um, putting people in chambers and dropping the air pressure to the equivalent of 60,000 feet, which caused them to die extremely agonizing death in a few minutes and then cutting their heads open underwater to see if there was air bubbles in their cerebral arteries. So mm. yeah, I remember the, the, all, of the, all these guys are documented. 
the only people missing from the documentation about who was brought over under Project Paperclip is the psychiatrist. So I would say it's almost for certain that somebody was brought over who was a Greenbaum-type figure, whether he was actually named Greenbaum or not. Mm-hmm. The thing that I find interesting is there were all these rumors of Nazi obsession with the occult, you know? There's all those rumors. Those are not just rumors. rumors. There's lots of documentation on them. Right. They were obsessed with the occult. Yeah. And then you have all of these Nazi doctors that come over. And then you have right. all of these reports of satanic ritual abuse with people. And it's always kind of connected with these Manchurian candidate kind of programs, this mind programming, you yeah. know? Right. And I always thought that it was kind of it was a little bit convenient that the Nazi doctors brought over, and then there's this this satanic ritual kind of thing, and there's there's really kind of an interesting there's rumors. I mean, I, I say rumors because there's never any what I feel concrete evidence for the most part of like a rampant kind of almost satanic or or occult kind of occult cult inside of like the military and military intelligence, you know, people right. who are like avowed members of like the Church of Satanism in, in California kind right. of stuff like that, right. you know. So there's all these interesting rumors and I just think that it's kind of it's very convenient, you know, all these Nazi doctors come over and then you see all of these these reports of satanic ritual abuse that look suspiciously like mind programming kind of experiments and right. all these child pedophilia rings and, and all this different stuff. Well, something that ties into it, that column is it, it, it's a huge Actually, the John Travolta movie, The General's Daughter, just yeah. Yeah. Peeked, peeked into the edge of that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so it's either it's either just a huge, crazy fantasy cooked up by some mentally ill people, or it's this very deeply embedded network of cross-relationships and cross-connections that's yeah. Yeah, and very, what's very well protected and controlled. What's the reference in, in, in your book? Book the CIA doctors to um, the Scottish Rite and con- you know the psychiatrists being associated with the Scottish Rite conferences and Scottish Rite Association. Well, the Scottish Rite equals the Masons. Exactly. And, what uh, they doing in the middle of it? Well, that's a good question. I don't have the answer why they're there, <laughs> but I mean, but in many in your this is all documents. So the, you can find many of the LSD experiments where there's funding by. MK Ultra either directly to the same doctor, funneled through the public health service by different different routes, um, and then there's cross-funding of the same network of LSD experiments by the Scottish Rite Foundation and sponsoring of major LSD conferences. That's a fact. Yeah, and a and lot of these a, guys are 33rd degree Masons. It's crazy. And you have a tentative explanation in your book, uh, or you write, so I quote you. Although the Masons are not implicated as an organization in CIA and military mind control, connections in a network of doctors were maintained in part through high rank in the Masons. Right, exactly. So, which is which is sort of like pedophiles in the Catholic Church, except the Catholic Church is implicated uh, in the cover-up. Yeah. So we we didn't get a chance to to really go. Through all of the MK Ultra history, or the, the you know the the Manchurian candidate history and all of that kind of stuff, but they need suffice, to read the book. Yeah, but suffice to say yeah. that the the CIA, etc., U.S. intelligences have spent a long time and a lot of energy and effort and money into finding out how best to basically create a mind-controlled human being, right. and. My question is, assuming that they've got it down to a fine art after, you know, 60 years or more, um, 
what's the point? What, what do they want these people for? Uh, well, I'm glad you're asking questions that I don't know all the answers to here. But uh, as far as as far as I can figure it out, the whole idea that you're going to get somebody, turn them into a venture candidate, so they would do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do, to me that's just mm-hmm. a big red herring. If you want somebody to go and become a serial killer, well, all you do is put them through basic training and send them off to a combat zone, but they're not mm-hmm. serial killers because they're killing the bad guys. Mm-hmm. So taking an ordinary guy mm-hmm. off the street and turning him into somebody who kills multiple people, there's nothing mysterious about that, and you don't need, quotes, mind control beyond just sort of like basic training level mind control. So, and if you want somebody to be a spy, you just recruit them and train them. Yeah. or deliver documents or whatever. So to me, the rationale has got to be the amnesia. And the only thing that makes sense to me is it's all about resisting interrogation. That when the interrogators you know, capture somebody, they're grilling the guy out front, and there's so many barriers and hypnotic codes and access codes mm. put in there that the interrogators can't get through to the real information. And in the CIA documents, it describes uh, efforts to detect Venturing candidates being run at the U.S. by foreign intelligence agencies, so they're clearly working on both sides of it. So, so, and so to me, that's the only. Otherwise, I don't see any purpose other than just, you know, the thrill of monkeying around with people's minds and doing stuff. Yeah. So it was essentially a military, uh, government, CIA intel application. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the original idea. Uh, Colleen, I have a, a question along. Uh, uh, okay. Joe's question. In one of the YouTube videos uh, where you participated, you mentioned yeah. a personalized mind control that is described in uh, most MKUltra projects, where basically you have one psychiatrist behind one patient for a month yeah. doing an individualized right. uh, brainwashing, let's call it this way. Right. But you also mentioned generalized brain, uh, mind control, and uh, you list some. Uh, tools that are being used, like disinformation, misinformation, TV. Uh, today, in 2013, uh, could you evaluate the extent of the generalized um, mind control? And I was thinking about other factors beyond the, one you, the three ones you listed, like, uh, yeah. like what is put in food, in water, in the air we breathe. I was even thinking about hop, that is, mm, because you list in a CIA doctor some um, mind control tools using waves sound waves mm-hmm. and electromagnetic waves, and uh, I wanted to know your take on it. Um, well, that's an area of interest of mine because I actually have a, a patent that's in kind of that general area, not to use it as a military weapon. But, um, so I'm interested in electromagnetic energy, and I've got a whole model for, I think a lot of the control signals inside our bodies are actually at the electromagnetic level, not at the biological level. And I, th- yeah. I think of human beings as being basic, and mammals in general, kind of like biological cell phones. We're emitting signals into the environment all the time and receiving signals from the environment all the time. And it's not just background noise. It's really built into evolution. And it, in the way back 10,000 years ago, it would have been used for tracking game by paranormal means. But it's really electromagnetic signaling. So I got a whole you know, model about that. And in the MKUltra documents, it describes uh, sound energy and electromagnetic energy being beamed at people's brains to and experimental monkey brains to knock them out, confuse them, change their mental state and behavior. In um, U.S. News and World Report, 
early in the 21st century, this I forget the exact year, there's an article called Wonder Weapons, and it describes um, uh, the contractor is Sandia Labs in, in New Mexico, if I remember right. It says what Air Force aircraft it was. It says what the specs of the machine are, the type of electromagnetic beam that it emits, how the altitude of the plane, how far into the skin of the target it penetrates. So these weapons exist for a fact, and you can uh, see pictures of uh, Marine Corps vehicles and weapons mounted on them on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So there's no doubt that this technology exists. And HARP is High Altitude Auroral Research Project that's based in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Jesse Ventura Conspiracy Theory Program did an episode on it. And from what we're told, it's kind of uh, weather control, maybe weaponized earthquakes, uh, communication signals with submarines, oh, stuff like that. Yeah, and so you've got the crazy tinfoil hat crowd who says that the CIA is beaming electric energy at them. Mm-hmm. Well, some of those people probably are delusional, but not necessarily all, because these weapons definitely exist. And if we we know for a fact that radiation, chemical weapons, biological weapons, LSD, were, tr- were tested on unwitting civilians, I would say the odds are low that these kind of electromagnetic weapons have never been tested on unwitting civilians. Mm-hmm. And um, there's pat- you can go to the U.S. office you know, patent office website and see patents in this area for beaming uh, electromagnetic energy at people's minds, at their heads, to modify their mental state, even insert uh, sounds, uh, voice, and language. Mm-hmm. So this stuff is right there in the public domain, and the U.S. government has already reviewed it and is aware of it. Colin, we've got another call here. I'm just going to go go to it for a second. Okay. I think we have another call. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, this is Lisa. I'm in North Carolina. Hi, Lisa. Hi. I just wanted to ask Dr. Ross a question uh, about psychic driving and how... Well, I think that the mainstream media uses some kind of variation of that. Psychic driving where uh, they used to put the tape recorder with a looping message under the pillow of comatose patients. And uh, in the objective, I guess, was to erase the old belief system and instill a new one using repetitive messages. And I see that the mainstream media also seems to do that with their programming. Can he maybe comment on that? Sure. So what you're describing is a MKUltra subproject with Dr. Ewan Cameron at McGill University in Montreal. And he was, again, not a mad scientist in the basement. He was one of the founding directors of the World Psychiatric Association, uh, president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association, the Society for Biological Psychiatry, a very politically connected guy, and also part of the team that went over and interviewed the defendant doctors at the Nuremberg trials. And in his MKUltra project, he there's two parts to it. There's depatterning and then psychic driving. Depatterning is massive amounts of electric shock to the brain, like 100-plus treatments. And uh, one of the chapters in my book is based on the medical records of a woman I interviewed who was compensated by the Canadian government for this. And so at the end of... Uh, 
several months with over 100 shock treatments. With each shock treatment, she got six times the normal amount of electricity to her brain. So at the end of that, she's incontinent of urine and feces, doesn't know her own name, doesn't recognize her husband or her children, doesn't know where she is and doesn't know what year it is. So that's deep patterning. And then what they would do is, from there, do psychic driving, which is with ECT and drug-induced sleep, they would play these tape loops over, as you described, thousands and thousands of times. Uh, and the, the rationale was, we're going to wipe out the old identity with its mental illness, and then we're going to build up a new identity that isn't going to be mentally ill anymore, which, of course, didn't work. But obviously the CIA is not interested in treating mental illness. What they're interested in is completely wiping out memories. And so this woman that I interviewed is complete amnesia for about age 25 back to birth from the time she entered, entered the ward and was depatterned and reprogrammed. So the, the under MKUltra and related projects, the CIA contracted with doctors and learned how to reliably totally erase somebody's memories with electric shock. Those are all facts. So then when you go, okay, what sort of watered-down or more general version of that is going on currently? I, I basically don't know. But I would say we just are swimming in a sea of propaganda and information control all the time. Yeah. I guess what I, guess what I was trying to get to also is how when people watch TV, their brains are kind of put into this alpha state and... You know, mm -hmm. then we have all this repetitive messaging, and then people start parroting back, you know, what they've heard on the TV. I did read your book, Bluebird, and I have to tell you, I think it's an excellent book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the CIA Doctors is the same book. I just changed the title because I thought people would know what Bluebird means. Yeah. Well, there's another thing that... Uh, I, I agree with you that it's a, it's a kind of... Uh, general population variation on psychic driving in a way. But if, if you think about what happened with, say, for example, 9-11, you put everybody mm -hmm. into a state of shock with a, right. an, a an attack on America, right? And mm -hmm. then the media repeats over and over again, you know, the, the story, you know, the 19 Arab terrorists, you know, attack on our freedoms, they hate us for our freedoms, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, we have to go to war. We have to blah blah blah. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They did, it. and and it's like, uh, what, who was it? Naomi Klein wrote the book, The Shock Doctrine. Yeah. You know that when when a society is in a state of shock, uh, that they are easily programmed. I mean, it kind of goes back to Ivan Pavlov and his transmarginal inhibition. Transmarginal inhibition is the term that was invented by uh, Pavlov, it's a brainwashing dogs term, which right. is then talked about a lot in um, William Sargent's book, Battle right. for the Mind, and he's the lead uh, psychiatrist expert on brainwashing in England who co-founded the World Psychiatric Association with Ewan Cameron, who is an MKUltra mm. contractor. Oh, swell. Uh, on 9-11, yeah. just a little interesting anecdote, there was uh, a teacher... Uh, in the U.S. Uh, on that morning, who got into class a little bit later, it was about 10 a.m., two hours after the attacks, and she didn't know uh, what had happened. She only found out from her students, and one of her students came up to her at 10 a.m. on the morning of 9-11 and said, uh, who is Osama bin Laden and what is Al-Qaeda? 
and that's how he introduced the the topic of what had just happened. <clears throat> this was two right. hours after the planes had flown into the the building. Yeah, and the message was already in the in the mass consciousness. Al Qaeda and 9/11. Two hours after a crime was committed, they knew who did it. But yeah. in fact, there's no no evidence has ever been published in the public domain sufficient to convict convict them. No. I mean, no. we've never actually seen the evidence. We just all know it was him. Osama bin Laden uh, was actually removed from... Uh, he, he was no longer a suspect after two months. Right. They just dropped the case against him, officially, right. but quietly. Yeah, I, I, you don't have any trouble uh, convincing me that there's many, many, many things about the 9-11 story that don't add up, yeah. including, including Building 7. The collapse of Building 7 doesn't make any sense. The flight path of the aircraft going into the Pentagon doesn't make sense. The fact that guys with a couple hours in a single-engine airplane could pull off a maneuver like that at that speed doesn't make sense. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. If I may, the, another reason why I brought up the CIA with the media is because isn't there a clip also, I think Scott team probably has seen it, where they are saying that they embedded CIA into the media many, many years ago. So it is yeah. highly plausible that they would have adopted some of their techniques and and things that they do and used variations of those techniques to reach a wider, broader audience and get the same results or similar results. Yeah. So I think the, the, the antidote to that is to be an informed consumer of everything and not buy the message you're getting just because it's the message. I mean, that's the basic antidote. And so this is obviously the function of the alternative media and, and people like you guys know. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, thanks for calling. Thanks for call, Lisa. Bye, Lisa. Bye-bye. Well, Colin, we don't want to take advantage of you or tire you out too much, so uh, we, we, we don't have much time left anyway so I think we've okay. covered most of the kind of ground although there's still a lot to say but maybe we can do that on another show at a later date but um, no, that'd be fine I'd be very happy to come back yeah. okay cool we've really enjoyed talking to you so yeah, it was yeah, great thanks very much okay and we'll we'll, we'll contact you uh, off air to kind of uh, get that copy of that uh, DVD set evidence of revision to you wonderful I think, you'll, yeah. I think you'll enjoy it okay I I very very much enjoyed this this uh, talk, interview, conversation. It's been probably one of our better shows, and I'm, I just think you're freaking brilliant. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. That's a good conclusion. I, I, I would never be so rude as to question your judgment. <laughs> I mean, of course, he's coming on the tail of, of Judy Wood. That was just a fantastic experience. All right. Okay. Well, thanks, for, thanks, Colin, and we'll, um, we'll talk to you again soon, hopefully. Thank Sounds you very good. much. Thank you, Cody. Bye. 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 All right, folks, that's the end of the show. We've, uh, it's a bit longer than our usual shows, but uh, I think it was worth it. Yeah. Uh, we will be back this time next week. Thanks to our callers. And, oh, sorry, actually, I'm being, I'm being told by uh, some people here that we won't be back next week, and that's quite true. We won't be here next week, unfortunately, because we have uh, a prior engagement Uh we have something to do next week uh, that means that we can't actually have a show next week, so you're just going to have to wait two weeks 
um, until our next show. So we hope you enjoyed it. And thanks for listening and thanks for our callers. See ya. Bye, everybody. Next week. Say bye-bye. Bye-bye. Two weeks. See you in two weeks.